Hey, and welcome into episode number 57 of the House of L podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Holmes, and I'm so happy to be here with you, and I'm so excited for this week. I'll get to the guest that's on this week's episode in a minute. Just wanted to thank you again for going back and listening to the last couple of weeks. If you haven't had a chance, you should. Those who have done it know the sit-down with Dion Miller was incredible and insightful. And Jack Silverstein, man, he's just, he's awesome. And I'm really glad that we got a chance to talk and that the feedback from the episode has been really strong. I like that. I like when people discover new people. And Jack should be a household name for people who love sports and history and I am one of those people. I enjoy both of those things. A little bit of sports, a little bit of history, mixed up in some fantastic linguistic style. And you got yourself a Jack Silverstein. So thank you for that. Thanks for going through and picking it. And look, if you're jumping on now, if you're like, oh, you know, I've heard about House of L. I, I like the last couple of, go back. Look, there, we have all the episodes available for you. They're available. So you can check out the sit-down with Sarah Spain or the sit-down with Barry Rosner or Cheryl Scott. Like one of the really, I think Cheryl was the third episode of the podcast. The first one, Jason Benetti. Sit down with him as we get ready for another baseball season. You can hear how he goes about doing his business. And the podcast has evolved since then, but... I'm just letting you know that there are people who have hit me up and be like, you should have this person on the podcast, and they've already been on the podcast. So just know that you can look and and you will find some people that you may not have even thought about being on the pod. All right? And the interviews are top-notch. 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 Okay. Let me get to my guest this week. He's one of those people that I absolutely adore. Chris Tannehill is, I think, the best sound man in our business. No one has an ear like him. The way that he is able to blend things together is incredible. And I'm so excited that you get the opportunity to hear him talk because most people don't get the chance to hear him talk. That often some of the signature stuff that we used to do on the night show, like hater Wednesday, he put the open together for that. His production skills are unmatched. It's that simple unmatched. He has an incredible SoundCloud page. Just search Chris Tannehill and you'll find like all the stuff that he did for the Cubs and the White Sox and any sports thing in Chicago, but you'll also find out about some of the mixtapes that he's done. And I'm a huge fan of what he does as a DJ. Yes, that's right. Chris Tannehill is a DJ. He he can blend music together as well as anybody. And he did this Windy City Soul mixtape 10 years ago. That is one of my favorite mixes. Go, just go search it on SoundCloud. 
If you're someone who enjoys Old Soul, you're going to love it. And he has a new one coming out. He said that he would put it in conjunction with this episode uploading. So now Tannehill has Windy City Soul Part 2 that is going to be available. I think that he's such an interesting guy because he hears things that other people don't hear. So we had a nice long conversation. You better settle in. Sit back, relax, and strap it down. Because I believe this is the longest episode of House of L. But it's worth it. It was great to kind of get his perspective on the medium. And now, having graduated, as I like to say, graduated from the nighttime show, is now he's the sound guy for the afternoon show. He's been that for a little while. I love to hear his perspective on the industry as well. So you'll get a glimpse into to the life of the man that makes all the great sounds at the score. His name is Chris Tannehill, and this is his episode. There weren't any ice storms yesterday either, and I ended up coming back from uh, New Orleans because I was afraid that the ice storm was coming. Well, naturally, yeah, then nothing happens. Well, I don't know. At least out by me, it was just rain. So I missed out on two meals because I had planned out well, there's going to be a steak and there was going to be some sort of dark rum drink to go with yeah. the steak. And then there's going to be beignets on my way to the airport. It's like, no, I'll come back and have Arby's with Mel. <laughs> I mean, naturally. I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't you? You know, you have opportunity to have Arby's with your goodly wife. Like, why would you ever pass that up? Well, she's pretty great. But it was weird, like, like hustling. Like, I'm on Tulane's campus just having, like, the best afternoon ever. Mm-hmm. where it's 74 degrees, it's sunny. Matt Forte got all the secret spots to go on the Tulane campus. I didn't even <laughs> ask him because I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be on my my route while I was in New Orleans. But it's such a like, – it's so pretty. Like, it's such a gorgeous campus. And I was like, ah, you should probably get to the airport now because you need to beat the ice storm home. Well, let me ask you, though. It's really it's, – I've been thinking about it a lot. And um, is the NFL ever going to recover from the <laughs> – protests of the Super Bowl in New Orleans. I mean, are they going to be okay financially going forward? I think the league's going to be all right. Oh, thank God. I I, am I love su- the Shield. I have to tell you, I am surprised at the impact, like from a, a television rating standpoint, where the national yeah. average, I think, was 44 and a half, mm-hmm. and in New Orleans, I think it was 25.2 or something like they that. They stuck to it. They, they committed did. to the bit, which I respect. I, I, I really enjoyed that they were... Petty, like soup, Tanny. It was. They were super petty. Like everywhere I know, I, you I, went. I, well, yeah, you you were there, obviously, so you I could speak to it. But there. the pictures I saw, it looked kind of sad. But when I saw the numbers come out, I was like, all right, I got no choice but to respect you. Yeah, you committed to the bit, and I always respect petty. So yeah, they they were all those things, and they were definitely committed to it. I love that city, though. I I don't spend spend nearly enough time there, considering it only takes an hour and forty five minutes to get there. Yeah, I've never been. You know, frankly, there's no baseball stadium to draw me there, even though I know I'd love it once I'm there because obviously food, culture, music, people. All the things that you like. Yeah, it's, except there's no baseball. But you Well, know. there's the New Orleans Zephyrs. They have, do have a AAA team. True. That And they do have what they call, at least when, the last time that I went and watched a baseball game there, Thirsty Thursdays, dollar beers. Okay, that might be that might be good enough. <laughs> that, the, and then you, you end up in the French Quarter, and it's like, oh. But my food experience this time 
was um, out of this world. As opposed to, I mean, I'm assuming you always do it up every time you're there. Like, why, what made this trip so particularly I, good? I was a, a lot more, I tried some stuff. Like, I had this lobster dish. There's this place called Brennan that's kind of known mm-hmm. for its breakfast. And so I did a little, like, mix and match. Like, oh, I like that, I like that, and I like that. Can I put all those things together? And the answer is, if you're willing to pay for it, sure. You can put whatever you want together. Sure, yeah. And and the server was great. He's like, actually, that actually sounds amazing. Because I had heard people talk about lobster omelets. Okay, I was going to ask you what's like a traditional New Orleans-style breakfast. Like, how do they how do they flip it differently than than up here? Well, the thing is, is that I kind of combined breakfast and and lunch it wasn't necessarily brunch we, we call that brunch here no, that's no, okay no it wasn't a brunch <laughs> item it's like they had barbecue lobster as an appetizer like it would be a lunch not type gri- not grilled but barbecued like with with sauce no and- but see that's the thing it was it wasn't like a traditional tomato like mm-hmm. barbecue it was more of how can i think smoked? about yes yeah, smoked okay. in like in a lobster bisque, like in mm. a little bit of lobster bisque. Gotcha. Okay? And then I said, could I have a couple of scrambled eggs? And they had pork tenderloins. I was like, can you you know, well make me a couple pork tenderloin bacon? Put that in quotes. <laughs> and they brought it out, and I lived like a king for That's, 30 minutes. It sounds so good. It was really good. I know. And if I didn't know anything about you, as long as you got the breakfast on lock, like everything else after that in that day, it's all it's all good. As long, it's, if the breakfast starts you out right, then you're good. I'm golden. And the night before, I had had shrimp and grits. And the, the place I like is Royal House. It's right in the French Quarter. They do Gouda with the grits. And it's okay. the perfect cheese to put in cheese grits. So my food experience was out of this world. I even had a couple of drinks, Tanny. I know. I, you must have really had a good time. I did. <laughs> I did. I, I just wandered around with a camera, just looking at people going, are you guys really not watching the Super Bowl? For real? It's okay to admit if you are. If you got it on your phone, it's okay. We won't think of anything, any less of you. There was the guy <laughs> that ran into Royal House. Not Royal. Where was I? Was It was it. I forget where I was, but ran into the place and was like, "This Super Bowl's a fraud," and the, and that and that was like the moment where the bartender was like, "You know what? Fuck this, man! <laughs> like we're not doing this anymore. Right. Let, let's turn the volume up on the Super Bowl because I've had about enough of this nonsense for the rest of the night, and I appreciated that too." I mean, I would have, I would have considered making the trip if they would have played the NFC title game along with the Super Bowl, Facts. you know, with, with the with Paul Allen's radio call with the Brett Favre interception <laughs> on Tracy Porter, like that. They should make that a national holiday just as is on the strength of that. So if they would have had that as a pregame build up, that would have been a sight to see it, or to it, hear. It's a place where I think that you should. There are yeah. two things that I want you to do. Wife and I definitely talked about it. It's a d- place we want to get to, you know, maybe when the kid's a little older or maybe just even, you know, husband and wife getaway for the weekend, that type of thing. The you two know? things I want you to do is go to New Orleans and see Hamilton. Drew Orleans and see Hamilton. Yes. I, you of all the people that I know would appreciate Hamilton in a way that I think most people don't. I know, but I feel like I would critique it because it's the weird thing about me. I love hip-hop, but when I when I see other people doing hip-hop, that's not what I'm like used to out of my comfort zone. I'm always just like, uh, this. 
yeah, they're technically they're they're <laughs> they're 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 doing they're they're doing some some artistry here, and they get it, and they know how to do it technically. But I don't, I just don't feel it. You know what I mean? But from the, what I've seen of it and what I've heard, we why I, you know I let the wife go because she won a lottery at work. And um, I couldn't get down there in time. We had a work thing. I forgot what we were doing. But I said, you know what? Someone else at your job would really like to go. It's really not fair to me because I kind of only want to go just a little bit. But I know if you told anyone else in the world, like, I have a free Hamilton ticket, they're going to, like, go crazy. I said, just take, you know, you and your girl from work. Go ahead. Enjoy. She said it was amazing. I still would like to see it. But it's, like, not the same cast now, right? It's no. different. But, I mean, the Chicago cast is really good, okay. too. Yeah, yeah. And Odie has a good – she has a really good – My wife, yeah. Yeah, your wife. She has a good sense of what's real yeah, and what's she does, not yeah, and real. She, and she loved it, yeah. So, I mean, I just, there there were moments in there when I was in there, and I had to be dragged to Hamilton, even though it is a perfect center in the Lawrence Holmes Venn diagram. <laughs> oh, here's a whole bunch of American history. Oh, here's also some hip-hop. Oh, here's a multicultural cast doing all of this. Right. It's right there. And, and I had to be dragged to it, and Mel kept talking about, you're going to love it. You're going to not stop singing it as soon as we go. And then... I went and I was like, this is amazing. And now, like, the soundtrack, I did, like, a super mix because, I mean, it's, like, 50 songs. But I did a super mix of, like, 15 songs. Mm. And I, I run that all the time. It's great. And now I'm actually doing some reading on some of this stuff. Like, some of the, 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 the way that Jefferson and Hamilton were manipulating the press in, in the history of journalism, it's, it's amazing. Amazing. And what really weirds me out is how young these guys were when they were making a lot of decisions for our, the, the the beginning of our country. Well, yeah. It's 19 and 20 year olds. I mean, you go back to the history of any time in the world, anyone that's that's fighting the wars worth fighting, World War II, like, you know done by men and women much younger, you know, people in their 20s. You know, it's it's really amazing when you think, but when you look back at it, you don't think of them as that. They were just doing what they needed to do at the time. So it's always crazy to go back and think of like, man, what would I have done? You know, what was I doing at age 20, 21, 22? You know, like, it's crazy just to think about. But, yeah, I, I got to get – I got to see it because – you know, after seeing the movie Moana, which uh, Lin Manuel Miranda wrote a bunch of stuff for that, and uh, you know he wrote a lot of the songs for The Rock in the movie, and actually, you know, we listen to the soundtrack me and my daughter a lot in the car, and they have like the 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 beast, the rare B sides that are not in the movie, where it's just Lin Manuel Miranda singing it. I was like, oh, okay, I get why you're not singing in the movie. <laughs> like, is singing not so much, but the the, the, the rapping and him singing. Yes. he's a great writer. I you know I, I love his writing and, and his wordplay and things like that so I I'll see it eventually I think okay I just want want to put it <laughs> they'll on put your, it on Netflix or something <laughs> they, they, someone will make some money off of watching yeah, exactly I guess there's some sort of like there's someone who's real mad about Hamilton and wants to write like a like a opposite viewpoint of it I'm like don't, what's what's the opposite viewpoint like don't like just don't like like just don't use that as the source material as your jumping off point. If you right. want to do like a Hamilton thing, then just do it. But don't make it like, well, I didn't like the play, so I'm going to write this adaptation of it. Like that just seems to be a waste <laughs> of time. So so since we were talking about going to New Orleans, you have a pretty cool tradition with Brendan McCaffrey, Herb Lawrence. Does anyone else ever join you guys on those trips? 
Oh Shep man, put me on the spot. Uh, Shep's gone. He's gone to uh, to Detroit with us in uh, a couple other times. He couldn't make it, but he's always like in the uh, in and he's in the the group. You know, whenever we're making these plans, making these big time decisions, you know, the the movers and shakers, and you know, he's always in in the conversation. Well, I'm I'm curious of the places they and and so that I can whiteboard this for everyone. Um, you guys go to different baseball stadiums throughout the country. Which ones have you enjoyed the most and why? Uh, it's always hard to separate the the stadiums from the city because I always look at it as an all-encompassing experience. That's why, you know, I, that's why I, you know people are going to, like, laugh when they hear this, but I really loved going to Baltimore. Like, that was one of my favorites because, I mean, the food culture there is ridiculous. It's, like, my favorite. Seafood, Old Bay. I swear I, like, had Old Bay coming out my pores. You know, they even had Old Bay in the beer. It's so great. (laughs) So it's, like, anything Old Bay. You know, you come back with potato chips with Old Bay, you know. And I love, I'm, I'm a regional accents guy, so the Baltimore's got a top-notch regional accent. What's the What's the Baltimore accent? Like, uh, like saying, oh, you know, you know, like, hey, hon, you know, like that. That's kind of like, it's almost, it sounds a lot like Pittsburgh in a lot of ways, but, you know, I guess that's, you know, close enough in the region where, it is. you know. Um, but speaking of Pittsburgh, I love Pittsburgh, too. Seattle, again, these are all just great American cities, Boston, you know, but I think the sleeper is definitely... Baltimore and I've really grown on Pittsburgh too since you know I went there the second time when the uh, Sox were there this past season and it's a it's a really cool little town I know you were there not long before I'm a huge or after fan of Pittsburgh. it's awesome yeah so I don't like how close it is to West Virginia but <laughs> <laughs> well Baltimore's like that too where you're like you know they sing thank god I'm a country boy during this I think it's the seventh inning stretch and people are like yeah I think it was you that yeah you're this is basically still the south it is so. So you have you have to keep all of that stuff in mind which is fine and, but it's and just I, different yeah. I enjoy the south but i have come to the conclusion that i enjoy metropolises in the south Mm -hmm. give me louisville give me charlotte give me new orleans is kind of its own thing you know like it's it's the south but it's it's everywhere like it's got a little bit of everything in it but give me a metropolis in in a southern city and, and i'm i i'm down with that i i really am but pittsburgh is that ballpark it's so gorgeous, and I think that they, they, I just want the White Sox to just pick just, the just ballpark. Can you just pick it up and turn it around? Just, just ninety degrees. You just, you jack it up a little bit, just a couple feet, just rotate the whole park. And you, and you sit there and you realize you go, this is what, what they could have had. Now, I don't know. I mean, I know they were the first, you know, among those stadiums. The but they were like the last quote unquote modern stadium, and then they started going retro right after. Because um, Camden Yards came soon after Comiskey, the new Comiskey Park, so I, I get it. They were they were kind of behind the curve on that, but just like when you go and you take the picture, I know you've taken the picture with the Chicago sign up right. at the 500 level. It's like, oh, how did they miss that? But it's still it's a great park nonetheless. I guess there was an architect who did. I'll, I'll find you the story and I'll send it yeah. to you. But there was an architect who was like, you know what you should do? You should turn it north so that you could see the skyline. But it was the, the same architect, I think, as as Camden Yards, right? So like, I believe so. You know. But then again, Camden Yards, you know, they had the uh, the warehouse there. Like that was their backdrop. They don't have much of a 
a skyline there. You know, they're they're pissed off because they just built, I think it was a, a Hilton there in left field. Yes. And so it covers up the clock tower, which is a big thing out there. That was one of their landmark items that you see in the outfield is this big clock tower in the middle of downtown. And then, of course, the hotel chain is right in front of it. <laughs> I, I know that this, it's weird to promote another podcast on this podcast, but there's an episode. I want to say it's called the 99% podcast. And they did a whole thing. I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. There's a did a whole thing on the building of Camden Yards and what went into all the things that they had to keep in mind when trying to build it out. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Jason Lockanfora of uh, NFL reporter fame. He has a podcast called Be More Opinionated, and they had the uh, 25th anniversary of Camden Yards recently, and they did a whole podcast on on Camden Yards and what it meant to to the city and the ball club in general and all the you know great moments that came soon after with Cal Ripken and things like that. But yeah, Baltimore, great city. You go down to the uh, to the the city market in downtown and you see like, you know, still like a, a community that still goes there, buys their food there. And you got guys, you know, shucking the oysters there mm. right there in front of you. And, you know, you throw them away in a garbage can and some old lady will come up and say, no, no, hon. You know, we, we recycle those and put them back into the Chesapeake Bay. So please don't throw those away because we're going to we're going to we're going to put those to good use. So it's, it's a cool little town. It's, it's obviously on some tough times when you drive around the outskirts. Sure. But, you know, like any city. Exactly. But it's still vibrant there in the, in the city center. You know, it's funny because I feel like they're. There's almost an appreciation for other cities that I don't think that we have for our own when it comes to, well, you know, downtown Baltimore is great or you know, by the water is great. Yeah. And, and, and then it's like, well, there's other there's there's places where things are rough. Yeah, I think the national perception of Chicago isn't like that. And I think it's weird that it's not like that because this city is is beautiful. And, yes, we have a ton of problems in our city, but there's so many great portions of it, like so many great neighborhoods. Neighborhoods, yeah, which, you know, ironically, it's like, you know, one of the, in the you know, a long time ago, that was one of the things that made the city not so great because everything was so sectioned, segregated. segregated and sectioned off. But over time, you know, a lot of people aren't, you know, huge fans of gentrification and things like that. And, you know, but say what you want, but at least it's brought, uh, you know, the people that can still afford to like have businesses in areas that are gentrified, they can still at least share the culture that's been there for like, you know, over a hundred years to people that are just coming in. And that's one of the beautiful things about the city. It's still everywhere you go. There's still those little places you can go here and there that kind of still have, you know, that element of culture to it. There's pieces of history of this city too, that, I mean, there's stuff that I didn't know. I went and saw a musical over at the Goodman. I forget the name of it, but it was so good. Had a great time. And it was really about, like, the Latin experience in America. Mm -hmm. It It was a bunch of different vignettes of different stories. And what I didn't know was how Puerto Ricans in Chicago kind of lived on the lakefront in what we would now call Lincoln Park. Okay. And we're kind of gerrymandered west. That that's how Humboldt Park ends up being Humboldt mm, Park okay. is that they are now pushed away from the valuable property on the lakefront and end up having to be you know around Damon and, right. <laughs> and Division instead of on the lakefront and Division. There's so much like there's a lot of that with our own ballpark. Exactly. You know, with, with the expressway separating Bronzeville yeah. and, and, and Bridgeport. Yeah. 
It, it's something that that still like is a part of the history of this city. I know you're like, wait, I didn't sign up for this to be the topic of the podcast. I'm today. not saying that. I'm fine talking about it. You know, we I've lived here my whole life, just you know, like you have. So you know, there's a lot of uncomfortable uh, aspects to this city, and you know, and sadly, you know, it feels like everyone's getting priced out of everywhere that's worth living. You know what I mean? So it's tough. We're still in the city. I'm glad that we got a chance to still stay. You know, we're you know we're. Northwest side still, you know, but were you always uh, Northwest side? I was uh, Rogers Park pretty much uh, f- for my whole life until I was about 25. Then I moved to Portage Park and then was there for a while. Then went back to Rogers Park. So pretty much always North side, you know, but usually closer to like, you know, closer to the lake, Clark Street, that area, you know, Rogers and Clark, Tui and Clark, things like that. So What's cool. special about Rogers Park to you? Uh, Rogers Park made me who I am today because I went to a school where I all types of kids there. You had Mexican, Jamaican. I had friends from every corner of the world, seemingly, and that's pretty much uh, encapsulates Rogers Park. You know, it's still to this day, even with people being priced out, there still manages to be that great mix of people from all over. You know, Indian. You know, it, it, it's still it's a huge population in Rogers Park. Especially, yeah, you go up and down Devon, which I wasn't far from. You know, and growing up in Rogers Park and seeing the world is not just like what you see in the mirror. You know, there's other people in the world who have cool things to share. And, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed learning about other cultures and personalities and, and things like that living in Rogers Park. I like to try to keep a worldly view and not try to be so, like, you know, individualistic when you, th- when you think about the world's issues and problems and how to solve them. So growing up in an environment like that early helped me really appreciate a, a lot of things. Do so. you want to raise your daughter in the city? We just moved. My daughter's four. We just decided to stay in the city. Really, it was mostly out of necessity, um, but it's one of those things where we're not totally upset that we had to stay in the city because my parents are still in the city, her parents are still in the city. But I, you know, I grew up in the city, so did my wife, and you know, I believe that there's a certain value to being a little street smart and not living a sheltered life. And I'm not saying people who live in the burbs or grew up in the burbs have a sheltered life, but I think. I experienced more growing up in the city than someone else uh, my age growing up anywhere else in the world, you know, in Chicago in particular, uh, would have experienced. So I definitely, granted, has its problems, you know, but anywhere has their problems. You go out to the suburbs and ask them about the problems that they have with their kids in high schools, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, kids get bored. They start experimenting a little bit, you know. So. And maybe they have stuff that the, at their disposal. Exactly. It's a little easier than, than children in the city do. Exactly. And, you know, above all, I just want my daughter to be cultured and have respect for, for everyone and their contributions and kind of just – almost take it for granted in a way. You just grow up around it and you just don't even think about it, you know, about other other people that are different from you. So I, I definitely think there's still value in, in raising your kids in the city. With Rogers Park kind of being the backdrop for your young life mm-hmm. and a big portion of your life, how did it manifest musically for you? My best friend, uh, Rob, he has a brother, uh, DJ Turnaround, who I got to work with much later on, but from the beginning, you know, he was my best friend. He he is first generation Mexican American. His parents were born and raised in Mexico, and they they uh, immigrated over here like in the seventies, I think. But you know, they were into hip hop, and I was a little bit at a, sort of a baseline level. And we're talking about you know maybe. Uh, ages 9, 10, 11, and, uh, you know, I had a baseline knowledge of what was popular on the radio. Listen to B96 and, 
my dad would bring home tapes of like LL Cool J for me and the Fat Boys. I don't even think he knew what was on it. You know, in he the, just it, knew that it was hip hop, and you well, liked hip hop. I, I don't even think he knew that it was hip hop. I think someone at work gave it to him or something, and he just like happened to just give them to me. I, I don't think he had any idea what was on him. What so that, was he listening to? Uh, my dad was a country music guy, or still is. So you know, that's interesting. Yeah, he big, big time into old school country, but you know, I, I wouldn't call my dad a music guy per se. You know, it's sports radio, <laughs> obviously, twenty four seven. But you know, old school country, Conway Twitty, and my mom was always a classic rock person but she also loved talk radio so grew up on a lot of you know steve Dahl, Stephen gary you know things like that so my buddy rob and his brother sal he was a dj and they would do basement parties back in the day up in rogers park so you know he had this massive record collection uh at our disposal and we were just two little bastards like that would you know after school after grade school we'd go back to his house and play records and i would start getting into more and more of the underground stuff like you know, East Coast 90s boom bap. That's like my lane right there. That's my favorite, you know, genre, my subgenre of hip hop. So it really all started there. And then you just like, you know, once you get into it, just get deeper and deeper and more obscure, more underground. And that was pretty much like sent me on the trajectory to DJing. So when did you know that you wanted to try DJing? Um, kind of late in the game in you know in comparison like we would always make tapes but it was never something i always felt like oh i'll never be as good as 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 the older guys you know like as as my guy sal you know dj turnaround and his his buddies were like i'll never be at that level so you just you get familiar and you start figuring out how to work the equipment i didn't buy my first turntables until i want to say 98 that point i was 15 which doesn't sound like you know old but like usually people who have their texts like they they you know i don't know how old your brother was when he started you know djing but you know people get started young if you 11 12 exactly so i was a little late in the game um so yeah it was really it wasn't until like 15 when i started started the record collection and started experimenting and you know what can i i can afford to buy my own tables so you know it, it took me a little longer but yeah it's been ever since do you remember the first record that you bought yourself that i bought myself um no because we used to buy records and bring them up to uh the radio show at Loyola university and so i was so naive i would just buy i would go to gramophone records on clark i would buy a bag of records bag of 12 inch singles and you know we would just like say oh let's leave these at the radio station and they'll be here every saturday when we come back and do the radio <laughs> show so you know that wasn't the case um <laughs> yeah pretty how naive right um but if i just write my name on them it's cool or if i just write the radio station call letters on them they won't they won't walk out the door um but it was oh my god but it, it was probably <laughs> It was probably a Moleman record. It was probably Moleman. It was probably MC Juice or Vak Hill, something like that. Somebody local at the time, or still local, but if somebody who was like making records at the time and it was something new, yeah, probably definitely something from Moleman, I would think. Okay. <laughs> so when did you know you had a talent for? Because it's one. I thing have to, a talent. I wouldn't say that. I, I, look, <laughs> I, I say it all the time, and I know that you're going to blush and you're going to say no. You're one of the best DJs I've ever heard. Period. And stop. It's ridiculous. It is not it's ridiculous. Not true. Also, it's not true. It, it is not ridiculous. And when people hear the new mixtape that you put out, oh. the Windy City Soul 2 mixtape. We'll get to that later. Yeah. I, I was listening to it, man. And it's, I mean, it hits me where I live. So yeah, it's, yeah. It, I'm, it's I'm preaching a, to the choir at this point. I knew you would enjoy it. So. Yeah. I'm the target audience for, <laughs> for that. And, yeah. it, and it's definitely worth it. But 
it takes a lot of balls to get in front of a room and think that you're the person that's going to make people dance. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's part of what fueled my career now. You know, like it helped with, I still have a lot of anxiety, but maybe that helped with a lot of it early on. But yeah, when the first time you get up there at a party and you're not 21, but you're rocking for a 21 and older crowd, and it's the first time you get up there on two turntables in an unfamiliar environment, and you still don't know the equipment right, and, and does this turntable skip a little bit? You know what I mean? You're getting used to your surroundings. Like it's it's daunting. I, but I didn't really start practicing per se because all I ever wanted to do was buy records, play them on the radio, and and that was that. I never had really aspirations to be a DJ, but it really became something out of necessity that I had to do because as guys that were doing the radio show with me, you know, had they were growing up into their you know late twenties and you know having wives and kids, and their obligations be, became you know a lot more for them to, to worry about, you know, then a silly radio show on Saturday nights. I was like, all right, I better step my game up. But also it was a pride thing because I was like, all right, these guys are good. There's no reason why I can't at least be in, in the room or be in the same conversation or be able to fill in for them, you know? So it was really more so of a pride thing. I was like, all right, let me, let me try to at least be respectable. And that's what it's all about. Anyone who's in the hip hop will tell you, they just want respect from their peers. You know, that's what it's all about. So that's what it was about for me too. So, so how did you get involved in the hip hop project? They had, uh, it was a station I'd already listened to and it's really, it's, it's a long story, but it's a story I like telling. When I was in eighth grade, the summer of eighth grade, so we're talking 1997, uh, my guy DJ Turnaround, who I mentioned earlier, he had a radio show at Northwestern University, WNUR. Shout out to uh, my NUR people out there. It was called The Graveyard Shift, so you can take a wild guess on what hours those were. I think it was from three to five, and they would have community programming where you could play hip-hop music. Uh, unedited, and they had a rotation of DJs, him, Catch-22, another guy uh, from up north who I respected a lot, still respect growing up, and they would have the show called The Graveyard Shift, and we would beg him. I was like, just take us down one day. It was, um, I think it was on a Thursday night into Friday morning at 3 a.m., and, you know, I had known him for a long time already, and to my parents' credit, they let me go and I was still in high school, they would let me go to this radio show and just hang out at like three in the morning. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they thought was going on. They probably had to think I was up to something else, but they couldn't call me on it because they weren't going to stay up till three listening to college radio. <laughs> so they had, it was one of those things. All right. Yeah. Go do the radio show, go hang out for a little bit. So once, once I got a taste of that, like hanging out there and it was just pure adrenaline, you know, carry you through the whole next day at school because, you know, other kids are freshmen. They're worried about, you know, not getting harassed in the hallways at Gordon Tech, all boys school at the time. But I was just like, you know, riding high, like that was pretty damn cool. So, you know, I started really getting into college radio and, you know, experiencing the hip hop shows. There's some great hip hop shows in the city that are still there that are still doing it from 20 plus years ago. You know, the show that, that I used to do, the hip hop project is still on WLUW. You've got dedicated with DJ third rail on WNUR. You've got my guy CTA radio uh, on WHBK, the pride of the South side. So I started really getting into college radio and it, I don't know why, but it just really, I, I was obsessed with it. You know, a lot of these shows were running really late night, like 12 to five on a Sunday night, Monday morning, you know, and I would stay up and try to like listen midnight to one o'clock and then set the tape recorder and then listen on your way to school the next day. So 
eventually WLUW at Loyola had a show, The Hip Hop Project, and it was on much more decent hours, 7.30 to 11.30 on Saturday night, so I could stay at home and listen. Other kids were out doing stuff on the weekends. I would stay home and listen, and what I liked about that show was it was uh, very much locally influenced. Like, they really wanted to put on for Chicago artists, so they had a newsletter they put out, and they were looking for contributors to the newsletter, people to write articles to provide artwork. So I was like, all right, let me try doing all of that. So, you know, they're looking for photography, anything to get it jump started because they were just a two man operation with uh, brother L Lionel Freeman and my guy Ishmael. And so I sent some sketches cause I was do- into illustration at the time. And I wrote a couple of articles just about whatever, like record reviews or whatever it was. And they're like, Hey, we really like this. We want you to contribute to the newsletter, come down to the radio station. So Went down there and it was it was awesome. Like the first night I was there, I met Chicago legends like Ange Thirteen and Rubber Room and Thaw Four and Single Minded Pros and Mr. Greenweeds, who is a big score listener. Um, so, you know, it, and then I just kind of stuck. I I showed up, brought records, showed up, bring something to the table for us to work with. Don't just show up. So I just started bringing more and more new records. They would you know, play them every week. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, this, this guy gets it. And eventually, you know, became my show once those guys graduated and moved on. So, so here you are, you're a young kid who loves music. Yeah. I'm like a sophomore at this point when I was going down there every Saturday. So I was like 15, 16. There's something about that that I think is great. Like I, I missed out on it. My brother experienced this. And I was always like in awe of it. I remember the first time that I had ever gone to DePaul was my brother was going there and he took me. So he's 18, I'm 13. Southside kids growing up in Roseland, we never really spend any time up north. And mm-hmm. it's a different, it's a different thing. Yeah. And the, it's, the, the scene in Chicago is still, you know, I'm not going to talk about the scene like I know it firsthand, but it's still divided like South Side scene, North Side scene, like two, still talked about as two different entities. You right. Know? And and when when I, I remember going up north with him and my mom's old Honda Civic hatchback back in the day and us like bumping music in there and just being like, wow, Chicago is a whole different world. But there's something about when you're in that that age range and you get to experience the city in a way that is outside of what for lack of a better term ordinary people no yeah get yeah. get to experience <laughs> it because the ordinary like route for a day of of someone that's your age going to Gordon Tech isn't well, go be on the hip-hop project on it's, Saturday night. It's not. I mean, other kids had sports. You know, they wanted me to play football because I was always a big kid. But, you know, just something about hip-hop community and hip-hop culture just, like, was the first thing. You know, you're looking for something to embrace or vice versa, something to embrace you when you're at that impressionable age. So you immediately you click up with people who have common interests, who love the culture, and all of a sudden you're in it, and that, that becomes what you do. And, you know... It, just thinking about back to those days, like hanging out with, with DJ Third Rail up at NUR and you're helping him unload tons and tons of crates to do a five-hour radio show, which back this is before Serato. He still doesn't use Serato. He's a purist like that. But, you know, you know, dozens of crates to, for a five-hour radio show. 
And, you know, at, at the end of the night, at the beginning of the morning, you're out there and then you're on Northwestern's campus on the lakefront and the sun's coming up. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's crazy to think of that now, like staying up until six in the morning now, especially to do radio. But like, yeah, I mean, in high school and you're hanging outside a metro, you can't legally get into metro yet because you're not 18 but atmosphere there is there and you want to watch atmosphere perform and mf doom perform so you kind of have a rapport with with people because you're doing the radio show so you ask slug from atmosphere like hey can we help you guys carry in some crates and then all of a sudden bang you're in there and you don't have to worry about it you know it's you know it's one of those things that you never forget just like kind of hanging around and just being there like when that when that scene was was what it was back then what do you think was your what was your most favorite night on the hip hop project? On the radio show itself? Sure. Oh, you know, I don't know if it was, it was, it might be my least favorite night because it was, you know, it was when I knew that I was done with it. You know, it was when after Guru of Gangstar had passed away and we put together two weeks, I think it ended up turning into a month of tribute shows. The first, Two shows were just guru tribute shows. And then the second two weeks of the four were DJ Premier tribute shows because we loved Gangstar. It's my favorite group to this day. And But after Guru passed away, I was like, ah. I don't know if it was just a perfect storm of things in my life, but I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not ever going to be the same for me once Guru passed away. And I'll never forget just those shows and kind of knowing in the moment, like, yeah, I don't know if, you know, time is kind of, I've kind of outgrown this a little bit, even though I've, you know, there's guys that are older than me that'll do it forever, but they still love it. But I was like, I'll never quite love it the exact same way, you know, because every time I hear those records, I'll think of much better times, which is good in itself. But, you know, I just knew that, all right, it's it's a good time to duck out. And then you get older, you get married, responsibilities, that changes things too. But it was kind of a storm of everything. But just one of the last shows we did in our 15 year anniversary was just like, Bring as many artists as you can. Have them come down to the station. Long form like this. You're barely even playing music, but you're just bringing people in and talking about, you know, the way they influenced me and the show and the culture and just basically thanking people for the way they looked out when I was like, you know, a 15-year-old nobody, you know, you know, who just didn't know anything about the culture and just, you know, and just watching them, you know, and seeing their artistry, you know, progress over the years, you know, just that that was those nights like that were memorable where you're just you know, people, they you know, would call up like, what's up with the music? You guys not going to play music anymore? It's like, no, I'm, I'm talking to some people like right now. These are legends in, in the city right now. And we're just, they're just, they're venting about their creative process and how the city doesn't show love and things like that. So it's nights like that. I'll always remember when you think you're doing something different, you know, like we have all those shows recorded and I hope one day, you know, if there's like, if aliens come, hopefully it's not sooner than later, but you know, if they come and they see these CDs of, or MP3s of the shows, like this is what Chicago hip hop culture was from like, let's say 1998 to 2010, you know, this is the best representation of that. And that's all we ever really wanted to do. So do you, why is it that when it comes to Chicago hip hop, there seems to be a necessity to leave Chicago for record sales, validation, concert sales, all of that. Why is that? Why are there artists that are always going to be local? 
in instead of blowing up. Like I think about Twister. And Twister had success on a national and I guess an international level. Yeah. But he's I one of the rare exceptions. He's the exception in the rule, you know, that he was able to stay. I don't know where he lives, but for the most part, he's able to stay and, you know, bring people up with him that were from here. You know what I mean? Like he's the rare exception. Like I, I it's not even it's not even just hip hop. It's like that. You know, we talked to people in the industry sure. who kind of had a similar trajectory. Like, you know, I had the conversation with Jason Goff before he left in 2012. I was like, you know, I was like, maybe you're just like common. Maybe you have to leave to, to blow up. It's a sad thing. And. I was young, but uh, one of my guys, Shala, tried to explain it to me. His theory was that you have all these young artists, right? And their parents were artists too, and they they grew up playing the blues and jazz or whatever genre they were playing, but they also had the same thing where they had to to leave to to blow up. So they carried that burden with them, like oh, the city doesn't the, doesn't support their own, and they kind of pass it on to their generation. Of, of children who became, you know, hip-hop artists. And so that's just something that goes back, you know, like decades. So it's something that you really can't even fight at this point. Like, I don't know if that's true or not. It made sense at the time. But you know, I, I don't even know if it's true anymore uh, with the digital age, if, if it makes as big a difference. But obviously it's it's worked for Chance. He, he stayed here. You know, he never had to leave to blow up. But obviously he's world-renowned. So, you know, it, it's crazy, though. It Definitely for a time it felt that way for sure. Like, you know, it talking, felt like being a Chicago MC was a burden. Yeah, Common had to leave, and you know, you definitely hear it in his records. You know, the resentfulness of like, you know, it was like a, you know, there was it was a freeing aspect of him after he he had blown up. But he's like, yeah, I left. You know, so what? <laughs> you know, but I had to. I, I had to, and you know, people hate on me for it. And then there was the Kanye thing too, where he had to leave and blow up with with Jay Z and Rockefeller. You know, so it's. Even the greatest of the greats had to, to deal with that, and I, hopefully that's behind us now, and that's not a thing that people have instilled in them when they're when they're working on music these days. Hopefully that's a thing of the past. I, I, it's safe to say it probably is. I think with the internet, you know, when I when I was DJing, you know, earlier on, the internet wasn't really much of a thing when I was doing radio. It was, but not to the extent that it is now. So I think it's maybe changed for the better as far as that goes. Was there ever a point? where you felt like you weren't accepted because if if people people hearing you were like well, I don't know what Chris Tannehill is oh, and yeah. some people here don't, no, even they had don't, that yeah. had those moments <laughs> for a long time uh, <laughs> trying to figure out where you come from uh but were, did you ever have those moments where you felt like an outsider in a culture that you felt like you you took ownership of Never, not once. Um, I, I felt more of an outsider with a lot of the other kids. I was like a lot of the white kids in high school because they were into, you know, uh, you know, playing football and things like that. And they grew up like in other parts of the city that I wasn't used to. Like you know, so I had more of a rift with with kids like that who probably thought from the outside that I was like someone who was like trying to be something they're not. But to me, I was just always me. And when I was growing up, it wasn't. Hip hop wasn't uh, a black thing to me growing up because friends were Mexican, black, Asian, and they were all contributing to the culture. And I think that's what made me fall in love with hip hop culture so much because not once ever did anyone ever say, uh, white kid, you can't do this, can't do that. And of course, as I was starting to experiment in hip hop culture, Eminem was starting to become a thing. So I don't know if that helped a lot. You're talking like, you know, 97, 98, Eminem was really starting to make a name for himself with a lot of his, his records that he was putting out. So I don't know if 
maybe it was just, you know, a generational thing. I know people have definitely had suffered from that uh, in years past before me. But I think by the time I became of age, high school age, adolescence, that was not a thing at all because you had break dancers, graffiti writers, people of all walks of life that were contributing. So as long as you were contributing, that was all you needed to worry about. So I think that your ear is so valuable to what we do on the radio side because you draw from different places. And I I joke about this all the time that when I was a producer, I was pretty good. Um, Spiegel was really good. Goff was really good. But I think you blow all of us away. It's it's a it's a not a fair comparison because of the archaic technology you guys <laughs> and you guys are quick to point that out all the time. Like, oh, you know, we were cutting, you know, literally cutting tape with the razor blade and whatever. Like I, I couldn't imagine I never ever had to deal with that ever once when I was at school. We never did that. They never wasted our time. It was pretty much straight to digital. So you guys were doing digital in the nineties? Yeah. Well, I was doing radio edits for the radio show, you know, flipping curse words in reverse. Like in in the late '90s on Cool Edit Pro, goodness gracious! (laughs) So that's really where it all came from. Like you know, I didn't take a class to get familiar with with audio editing. It was kind of just I had already been doing it for years, uh, just in a different context. So you know, but a lot of you know, I have a lot of natural ability from practicing, but like learning how to do it properly, I learned a lot from guys like you and guys like Jason. You know, working on your show was such an invaluable resource to me. Uh, you know, it taught me what works, what doesn't work, what uh, a host is looking for, what an audience is looking for. So, I mean, I you know, I told you this already. Like, you know, I owe you so much gratitude, like, for the things you taught me about this business and how to do a radio show that I still carry with me today because I still look up to you as someone in the industry because, you know, no one prepares like you. And as far as someone doing the show solo, there's no one putting the work like you that can that does a radio show like you do so you know oh what well, I, I thank you i i mean i i try i try to make it as fun for for people as possible and i just you jump off the page like you as a producer jumped off the page of oh this guy can do stuff like he can <laughs> do like real stuff like you took the nighttime show to a place that i'm not sure it would have gotten to without you because sonically the show changed like what you made things that were impossible for us to do then become possible i don't know because you you were always the mainstay and you had joe and you had herb so i think this you know the vibe babe would still have been the same i think you know like i'm happy to have helped like if you think i made it you know any just a little bit better then, then it already was, and that's great, and I feel great about that. But you know, it's it's the behind the scenes stuff, you know, like you guys, the chemistry that you guys have had, you know, and having to do it with different producers. Like you had Joe for a while, and you've had Herb for a while, but having to rotate the part timers in and maintain continuity is not an easy thing to do. When guys like me, when I was coming up trying to learn the business and learn how to produce a talk show. You know, I was coming off doing producing White Sox games, and then once the baseball season was, season was over, learning how to produce a talk show. You know, so you know it, it's crazy. Yeah, like, but you you're know. selling. Yeah, I, I'm. You're selling yourself short. I, I'm not kidding. Like, it, there's a difference. Like, and I'm sure if, if Spiegel were sitting here or Jason were sitting here, they would say the same thing. The, the stuff that we did was good. 
the opens that I used to put together for the McNeil and Jiggett show mm. or when I would fill in on North, like those are good. They were solid. They were topical. They they had usually a diff, a good reference to them. They were ready. Like they were exactly what the host wanted. Mm-hmm. But but what I'm saying is that I think that you have changed the way that score listeners actually listen to to the the production side of what we're doing. Not necessarily what what the host is up to because we do what we got to do. Right. But you you've actually changed the way that the listener is engaged because you can draw from so many different places sonically. I mean, that's the biggest compliment in the world. I should probably just take my compliments and, and move on and keep it at that. But yes. I'm not who I am without guys like Jason, who uh, who I learned so much from just from listening to because I was always a B&B guy, a Boris and Bernstein guy, and listening to Jason just, you know, it was the Wild West with sound, and he was always a big influence on me. And then I had the opportunity not only working – Alongside Jason, you know, those shows, working your show, being able to take things that I'd always wanted to do and sort of, you know, make them my own and see how they would play uh, once it was for real. Once it was on the air and became a segment, how do you make a segment better? And learning from guys like Rock Momola, too, because I worked on the morning show a lot. Like I was his fill in when he would go on vacation or when he was on paternity leave, like I would fill in for Rock and I learned a lot about my work ethic from Rock. Like, you know, he's just a monster. Like, you know, he's gone on to do great things in Tampa. But, you know, when he was here, like he was the gold standard as far as putting the work in, you know, just like teaching you, oh, this is what time you need to be here uh, if you want to have a morning drive show run successfully. You know, so I owe, I owe so much to Rock Momola too. Like you take... Some, a little bit from everyone you meet, you know, you, Jason, Rock, Joe O, you know, like you take so much from everyone. So I'm, I'm glad that I can be like, you know, a solid representation of what everyone has taught me along the way. How fun is it for you to experiment with some of this stuff? I because I, I remember the uh, it wasn't the Cubs World Series piece. The Cubs World Series piece was great. The Cubs winning the National League. Man, you put your foot in that. You put your and, and which is crazy. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think about it. Like that, I think that has the most plays on my SoundCloud, and I always wondered why. So I'm curious to see like why. I mean, if from, from what I remember, the premise was how they built their title team. You know, what yes. I mean? it was it was a, it was how they built it. Every move along the way and leading up to uh, them beating uh, the Giants or Dodgers, beating or, the Dodgers, beating the Dodgers. Yeah, but I mean, it was. Epic. And <laughs> and those were the types of things from a technology standpoint we just couldn't do back in the day. Right. You but, couldn't go back and find a scoreboard update from a year and a half prior yeah. you know, when they drafted uh, Chris Bryant. You know, <laughs> we honestly didn't even have the technology. I feel like a straight up dinosaur even talking to you about this. We didn't even have really have the technology to do a piece that long. Because the cart. The tape would run out. Yeah, the cart would run out. We maybe have point. like a three minute cart. If if you could find a four and a half minute cart, it was like gold. But you're able to churn those things out. How long from concept to finished product? How long does it take for you to do a piece like that? Um, I don't remember. I actually it may surprise you, but that particular piece that we're talking about, the the Cubs winning the pennant, it didn't take that long because all I had to do was look up the transactions and I'd go to my hard drive and find you know any update from that show. But, you know, a piece like the Cubs World Series montage, which I really wanted to make sure I was like, if I ever do anything in this industry, 
I'm not sure I'll be around at the industry long enough to do a White Sox World Series <laughs> montage. You know, I was still in school in 2005. I wasn't in the industry. So I wanted to make sure I did it right. And I think I started working on it a little bit every day. That's the only way. I can't cram. Didn't do stuff last minute because I would freak out. I think after the Cubs won the division in 2016, I was like, all right, time to start getting to work because this is a real thing now. Like they had dominated the National League all year. But it's like, you know, baseball, anything can happen. They can get bounced in the first round or they I, th- I thought that they were going to win the World Series. So for me, that helped kind of push me through. So you're talking like September, you work on it, add a piece here, a piece there. So I, I wish I could tell you how many hours, but, you know, it, it was definitely a lot. <laughs> you know, every day you try to knock out one piece, like you knock out, uh, uh, you know, summarize you know, a playoff round today, or at least, you know, put the bare bones in place or have the ideas in your head. Like you have little mini deadlines in your head. Like, okay, they're done with this series. So I should be done with this series. That way, game seven of the world series, final call, you're already ready to rock. You, you know, tell the studio to send me that final call, I'll slide it right in there. And then it's done, you know, and my guy, Billy Zerkat from ESPN 1000, he worked on, um, he worked on uh, Carmen and Sylvie's show and he was there, when I was an intern, you know, he taught me a lot about sound and he's a big Cub fan. So he taught me uh, a lot and he gave me a lot of good ideas for that Cubs piece. He's like, man, if I was still in the industry, this is what I would want to do. So I took some of that and it kind of helped expedite the process a little bit. But these things, they take a long time. You know, I wish I could say that I'm as fast as people give me credit for. It would save me a lot of time here in the morning and maybe I could go have a cup of coffee before the show. But these things still take time, even digital. So I couldn't imagine how you guys did it way back in the day. Yeah, but I, but I also think that it takes you a lot of time because you care about it so you're not just slapping stuff together there there how many times do you probably listen to oh i'm gonna take this little piece out a lot it's that level of artistry that we're talking about i need to add a bat crack and i don't like that particular bat crack because the you know the the effects mic that night didn't capture it or you know someone was talking over the call or you can't hear it quite right so let's pump one in it's too loud that doesn't sound real okay that's just right so yeah it's definitely a lot of just ridiculous micromanaging like that and like ridiculous attention to detail that would drive you know it would make you sick if you knew level i (laughs) i am also really impressed with the way you archive and i need to adopt some of that for house of elks i've already lost one up one episode because i didn't archive properly did you have to re-record or did you lose it for good it's just gone i can't ask the person who sat down okay i was gonna say if you want to they don't know they don't know and i feel bad because it was a tremendous episode it was like a great interview with like a significant person sorry barack obama yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's too bad that my my Michelle Obama and Ozzy Guillen uh, House of L episode got them together. That's a good guess. Yeah, you it's know, interesting I, room. I figured that you put them two together and you see what ends up happening. But but what? How do you track? How do you archive a show? Like, what things are you looking for? And and what's your data management like? Um. You know, I've lost hard drives over the years with a lot of music on it. So that, you know, from DJing, uh, you know, putting mixes together, that teaches you a lot about being thorough with your archiving process. You know, Danny Mac talks about it all the time. Like he's like, save your gold, man, because he, you know, comes from the scores heyday from the early days and you know they had so much stuff that they just lost like you know I'm sure someone's got tapes in their basement somewhere but he talks about great drops that he wishes that he would still have 
and I say, hey, man, just bring a tape in. I'm sure we'll find it. You know, I remember those clips were played every day. But, like, a lot of the tapes have become distorted over the years because the equipment wasn't right. Like, you know, they were recording on cassettes and not DATs, so you lose audio quality there. But I just carry around an external hard drive after, you know, during the show, I type my notes on my Google Drive so I don't lose it. Uh, what happened on the show that day, log the show. Then after the show, every day it's my ritual. Just, you know, go take the the logger files, which are the MP3 files of the show that day, toss them in a folder, and that's that. Like, you know, before uh, Boys and Bernstein's 15-year anniversary show, which was a big deal for me because at that point I've been on the show a couple of years, and you kind of knew that the the end was coming and that was going to be a big day because you knew Terry was going to be retiring soon, and this may be the last milestone anniversary. So I had been working on that show forever so i'm working on the bnb 15 year anniversary show we had the big show at radisson blue everyone was there i was like all right let's try our best to to encapsulate the show and i work on this big boards and bernstein montage a retrospective and my hard drive crashes uh, a day or two before the show happened so i had to cram and do everything all over again from scratch you know i eventually got the, a lot of the data back there's companies that'll you know, archive it for you and they'll extract files off a broken hard drive. But having to go back and redo everything, you know, you almost don't want to do it, but I couldn't have that moment go by without having that production ready, you know, because B&B was such a big part of my sports radio life and then become a big part of my professional life. I got my first full-time gig with them, so I had to go back and redo everything. So now I'm like super meticulous about archiving everything. I try to back up my drives like once a week. So if you're listening out there and you got your stuff on hard drives, make sure you back it up once a week at least. You know, if you can do it every day, great. Get yourself a couple of hard drives. But, you know, it's it's pretty devastating when you lose all your stuff. Like there's still stuff, music that I've lost that I really wish I had. And if I knew all the stuff that I had lost, like by detail, I just kind of pushed it out of my memory. But if I knew everything that I really lost, I'd probably would be really depressed and sick. So, <laughs> What was it like working with Terry Boers? Well... I mean, you know, and I think the listeners know just by listening to him every day, Terry was, was I don't want to say the same guy because, you know, the, the guy on the air was eh, 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 you know, a lot of the time. <laughs> but people felt his warmth and him just being a genuine person. And he was that same dude off the air. And Terry's a guy that I still talk to as often as I can uh, to this day, checking in on him, make sure he's doing good. And, you know, when we had the changes around here, I was talking to him then. And, you know, Terry's a guy that you would just, you know, you do anything for because you know he would do the same for you you just you know just one of the great people in the industry i don't have to tell you that and listeners out there you know we have a lot of crossover people that listen to this podcast or listen to the score i mean they know i mean terry is as good of a guy as you would imagine if not even better so love terry it, it it's come up a couple of times especially when i've talked with score people in some cases in other folks too like the idea of the hallway Mm-hmm. The people that are good for the hallway. And it's hard to put into words the, the absence of Terry Boers being here, the absence of Doug Buffone yeah. being here. It's it's a weird thing, and it's it's hard to explain to people. But whenever you see Terry, it, it always put a, a smile on your face. Yeah, like, you know, when I was doing the B&B, Terry would be – from home most days of the week but Monday you look forward to that Monday and Tuesday when he was coming in because immediate hug you know there's not many people in my life who you see give immediate genuine hug and Terry's on that list you know so there there is a value to that uh you know but I feel like the the whole hallways thing you know 
It's fine. It's overrated? It's overrated because at least me, I'm in my studio from like 10 o'clock until it's time to, to eat lunch. And then I'm usually eating lunch while at the computer. Sorry, engineers listening. Um, but, you're, you're very safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but I'm in, the, I'm in the lab most of the morning, so I couldn't tell you what the hallways were like. You know what I mean? So a lot of that is overrated. Okay. Know? I understand that. But, but being able to work on a show that was su- as successful as the Boars and Bernstein show was for so long, what do you think you learned from it? Um, it's, you know, I would love to say that <laughs> that I learned a lot from it. But as you know, each show is like its own living and breathing organism. Like there's different components to each show. Like that show definitely taught me to just creatively just put it all out there and not worry about what anyone has to say. Because when you work with hosts that just let you have free reign, which I still have to this day, but especially when you're first coming up and you're still trying to prove yourself and you're filling in, you know, filling the shoes of Jason Goff, which, you know, I still, it's impossible to even think that way. So you just try to think of, okay, how can I be the best version of me and what can I bring to the table? When you have a boss like Mitch and guys like Dan and Terry at the time who would just let you do whatever you wanted, you know, no pre-show meetings, just come in, whatever you got, we'll, we'll rock with it. It's just an invaluable resource to just have people that just have your back creatively you know it's in this industry it's it's so hard to come by but that's that's why i love it here you know it's i'm sure that's why you still love it here you do what you want every night you know no one ever has ever said to me don't do that you know like that was too long you know i get a lot of trust around here because i put the work in people don't question a lot of things i do which you know it's a great benefit to me that not a lot of other people have. I don't know if I've earned a lot of it, but you know, people often, you know, they'll, they'll seldom question something that I put on the air. And that's just a, such a liberating thing. There's a level of freedom at the score that is unique. And I think the Boers and Bernstein show played a big role in that being allowed. Not that, you know, it, other guys were doing stuff that was off the wall. I mean, North was doing crazy stuff, <laughs> yeah, he was. you know, off the wall. <laughs> but but what I I've always admired about B and B is it wasn't formulaic radio. Like they, like I do I do a formulaic sports radio show. Like I know that about myself. Yeah. I come in here's a topic. Let's talk about this topic. Most shows need that. I mean, there's got to be a formula. The structure, <laughs> which right. is why it's like the anomaly of of B&B being successful for so long. Like you can't you can't bottle that. You know what I mean? Like if you try to recreate that, you literally couldn't. It still makes me angry whenever I would host with Dan. And I, I've talked to you about this. Like you host with Dan, you show up and you know me, like I here's my Here's my list of ideas that I would like to get to before the day is over. And perhaps we'll talk to a guest about this. And then I'd like to spin this topic into blah, 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 blah. And you go talk with Dan before show. And you say, okay, so where are we starting? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, fuck you mean you don't know? (laughs) We'll do a show. Yeah, we'll do a show. But that's a sneaky. It's it's hard. It's hard to live in that place. But that's the the sneaky thing about Dan, though, is he'll do that like before the show starts, before transition, and then like once once the light goes on and the proper's are done, he's like, "What the hell are they doing at (laughs) Hell's Hall?" You know what I mean? Like, like it just Dan will turn it on that way. You know what I mean? And a lot of that too was like was from Maddie, and I would I would I would hate myself if I didn't mention Maddie as far as my influences. He's still one of my best friends. 
uh, Matt Abaticola and just like, you know, the standard that he set in the room with Dan and Terry it's like, you guys talk. Like, you shouldn't need a guest to get you through a show. You guys just talk and, you know, just be yourself. You know what I mean? Like, he had the utmost trust in those two because they had unbelievable chemistry. You know what I mean? Like, it, it shouldn't have worked, really. At all. <laughs> but it did. And so when you when you have an environment like that, it just like I said, you definitely wouldn't teach that in any radio course. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't have that as sort of like the template for making a show work because – the more the older I get and the more I work in this business and the more people I've worked with, you realize like that it, it doesn't work with everyone. You know, No, <laughs> you can't pull that off without having a, a guy that's going to be as angry about it as Maddie would be or a guy who could creatively fill in the gaps of the two hosts the way that yeah. Jason used to be able to right. where he would jump on. Like, and honestly, that's a great place for a talk show host to kind of hone his skills yeah. because you have to figure out. Oh, they're talking about this, but they've missed this angle of the story. And then Jason with 10 words can then shift the conversation. Yeah. And and that's effective communication. It it truly is. I mean, it's just it was such a blessing working on that show. Like, you know, it's when you're in high school and you're you're listening to the score and you're listening to Dan and Terry every day, you know, in, in between classes, after school, and, you know, and then all of a sudden you're working on that show, like it's still absurd to even think about, you know, and then to be on the stage with Terry during his final broadcast to have a segment with my guy, Terry, it's still crazy when you think about it. Like it's, you know, I don't even know like how are you able to function in the industry? Like how can you put that, you know, behind you? But, you know, thankfully I've had a a, a nice run here and I've worked with people who I I truly respect. So So how do you make that transition from doing the Boris and Bernstein show and, and doing all the stuff that was going on, like dealing with, Terry being sick for basically the last 18 months the, yeah. that that the show was on the air to then getting a, a new show and then another new show. Yeah. Like, how, how do you deal with that? Um, You know, bet- between you definitely knew you had to put some of the mentality of Boris and Bernstein behind you. Uh, and you, when I say Boris and Bernstein mentality, it was, you know, very relaxed and spontaneous. But like, you know, with 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 Dan and Jason's show, it's like, all right, we need to, you know, not bring a lot of those same ideals over because then you get complacency and you don't, you know, you want to, you want to give it an honest, honest go and, 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 and try to make it work and try to build new things. You and know? you want Jason to be able to establish his identity exactly outside yeah. of that show. Yeah. A lot of that show was Jason coming in. Cause you know, he was a different guy then, but by, by the time that you get to him and Dan yeah. teaming up, Jason's a much different and, guy. And he was a much different guy than when I was a part-time producer on the weekends. And when he was doing his shows, you know what I mean? Like was, he had already lived uh, an entire life in the industry. You know, it was only like five or six years really, uh, in actual years, but he had been through a lot professionally. So he was a different guy. And when you have a guy like that, that's getting his first, uh, not his first real big shot, but you're talking afternoon drive. Like he was on middays for a little bit, but this is afternoon drive, filling in, replacing a legacy show. You want him, you want so hard to, to make it work and try to build new things. So Jason and I, you know, he's, he's a North side cat too. So we have a lot of the same, uh, you know, opinions on things and had a lot of the same interests. So, you know, we click like that, you know, I've known him for a long time and, you know, Dan, I work with Dan. So I know we're trying to reinvent Dan a little bit, like over the course of it and kind of change his way of thinking, you know, like we can't do a show like he was doing with Terry, you know, Jason's going to challenge him a little bit, 
more. So you're trying to make things work. And it's definitely, it was, it was a different animal. I tried my absolute best not to like to have a, a clean slate, you know what I mean? And to have different ideas and way, the ways we were going to get through a show every day. And Jason has tons of ideas of what he wants to do. He's like one of the most creative people I've ever met in this industry. Like he's got ideas for segments for days and, you know, he does different spins on things and taking pop culture things and, and peppering them into the show. So, you know, it's, it's, it's different. And then you bring it to the new show that I'm on now, the McNeilan Parkin show. It's a different animal there. You know, like you always have to reinvent yourself in this industry, man. Like, but at the same time, don't lose touch with who you are. Like, you know, just be you. It's like, you know, the Matt Nagy thing, be you. It's so true. You know, it sounds corny, but you really if be yourself, but still be aware of your surroundings, you know, and, and try to gauge everyone else is on a different trajectory and, you know, everyone's at a different stage in their career. So you try to like take your knowledge and, and figure out what's best, like get in the lab and get to cooking and, and see what works, you know? I, I figured, I mean, Danny had had seen what you could do i was a little concerned about whether or not you and mac would vibe i, I was too yeah i mean that was that was a big thing because uh, because he takes sound very seriously he, he too. does and that was it was a part of my big concern i was like am i gonna uh, be able to live up to his standards like his standards are very high and it's i have no problem with high standards you know but he i'd never worked with him ever really definitely not ever as his sound man in all the years that he was here like I was on the afternoons or I would fill in like for Zawaski just so you know they'll throw a part-timer into screen calls for a little bit where they're on remote so I'd never work with him professionally you know so I was worried about how we would vibe um on a professional level um so we we talked you know as soon as we found out about the new show we had, we had a nice conversation I actually leaned on Terry a little bit too you know, Terry was like, you know, you're you're gonna be fine. It was like, don't don't worry about anything. Like anyone would be thrilled to to work with you, and 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 it's been good with with Mac and I in the show. You know, Mac and I actually a lot more alike than I ever would have thought. Like, we, you know, all this past month, it seems like we've been bonding over a Clockwork Orange. Like, there's not many people that he knows in the building that are fans of a Clockwork Orange. So, like, once he found that out, like, all that's all we've just been talking like a couple of droogs around here for the past couple of weeks. So, nice. you know, we there's you know. The high expectations there, he sees that that I care, you know, so like, you know, definitely some things early on was like, okay, this is how he's doing it. It's not how I would have done it or how like Finfer would have done it, I think. But over time, like, you know, you get into a groove. I think we're in a good groove right now at the new show, despite, you know, the, the rocky start, you know, back in March. So I'm glad you brought up a Clockwork Orange because it's probably my favorite transition in the the Windy City Soul Part One, oh yeah, mixtape. Mm-hmm. I like I I laugh every time, and it's so that blend is so smooth. You come out of the so it's the scene in the Clockwork Orange where Alex goes to the record store to 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 buy records and pick up a couple of girls to bring back to his apartment. <laughs> you know, so he's trying to get him back to his apartment, and he's telling him about the music that that they're gonna play. You know. Uh, angels, trumpets, and devil trombones, or whatever he you says. You are invited. <laughs> yeah, come with Uncle and hear all proper. You all invited. And I always wanted to use that because it was one of my favorite movies. And I was like, if I ever do a mix, that's you know, I'm definitely putting that in the back pocket. I'm not just gonna waste that on a you know, on a hip hop mix. You waste it. I was like, I'm gonna save this for something that's different. And I, I think I achieved that with with uh, <laughs> with the Windy City Soul. And mix. it blends right into <laughs> let the dollar circulate. It yeah, just Billy oh Paul, my yeah. god. It's a, it's so good. So so, what made you decide that you were gonna do another Windy City Soul mixtape? Well, 
people like you asking about it. Yes. You know, you're my target audience. Like I always like wonder how did I do with the mix? If if I know you're vibing out to it, I know I did a good job. But it's like became one of those things that I became known for as a DJ. And I put it out the first one 10 years ago. And I was working so hard at the time, probably a lot of uh, misdirected work, like just, you know, working with so many different artists, which I, would, I wouldn't take back for the world, but like not putting, d- dividing up my time and energy in proper places. Like I spent so much time working on the actual product and not as much time working on the promotion of the product. Like I think it could have elevated it to a different level and help expose a lot of these underground MCs that I was working with at the time, like I am Asmarad, Bamsky the Bigot, um, <laughs> Sham God, who I was working with, an artist named Sham God. Um, so I, all of a sudden I was like, let me break off and do something different because everyone else in the city at that time that was a hip-hop DJ putting out basically the same type of mix. You know, everyone had their different styles or different flavors, but it, ultimately, you know, it was all underground hip-hop and, you know, there was a place for all of it because the city is not that big as far as the culture goes and underground hip-hop goes. So there was room for everyone. So I was like, let me do something that is different. Let me do something that kind of digs a little deeper and and kind of brings more of my my parents' influence of cra- classic rock and things like that more into the mix and just kind of go in the history because I always want to learn more about what influences the things that I like, whether it's music or whether it's, it's movies. Like what influences something like The Sopranos to be what it is? What did David Chase draw his influences from growing up? So I wanted to take that same mentality and put it into a mix. So basically it's a mix of soul music, of funk, uh, soul breaks, what we call it, which is the the source material, the original sample of some of your favorite hip hop songs. So I did that ten years ago, and, and it went over pretty well. And over time, it became something I was known for with a lot of your help, because a lot of people around here really gravitated towards it. Guys like you and Spiegel, it spoke to them on a different level. And you know, I know a lot of the Bears players, like we, we do remotes with, like Des Clark was was a fan of it, I think. And mm-hmm. you know, guys that we were doing shows with, I got to kind of branch out and. And I was like, all right, I don't know if everyone likes the same kind of hip hop that I like, but I was like, I think most people can relate to just good old school, like funk and soul music like this. So that's what made me want to do that. And I'm so glad I did. So, How long does it take for you to put a mixtape together? Because if you're meticulous about <laughs> about a, a, a Cubs World yeah. Series montage, I, I can't imagine like music is your baby. Yeah. So so what's how does the planning go for that? Uh, well, obviously, this part two took 10 years <laughs> because, you know, I, they were 10 years apart and I was, you know, such a different person then than I am now. But, you know, really, you're you're hearing a song here or there and there's stuff left over from the first one that just didn't quite fit. So you're like, all right, put that in the back pocket. And if I ever do a part two, you know, I'll, I'll have it ready. So, like, you know, you pick it up a little bit and then, you know, it starts to come together, I think. Over time, once you have your songs, like that literally takes like years. It's not something that I'm working on like once a week or once a month. It's just kind of like stuff you pick up as you go. Something hits you and you're exactly. like, that should go in the mix. Exactly. Yeah. You hear a song that's out now and you, you start to dig and like, I wonder I wonder what that sample's from. Like, well, what's the origination for that? And then you put it in your back pocket. And then it wasn't until uh, about September when we were in the process of buying our house that I was like, all right. I was like. I need an outlet. I need something to channel all this nervous energy, you know, because it's a big transition in life. And I was like, I need something just to work on, to focus on that's not work, you know, because 
you know, music is such is so therapeutic, I think, to most people. You know, it's not not just you or me, but I think most people can kind of listen to their favorite song or whatever and vibe out to it. So I was like, let me work on this mix. So it took actually not long. Once you have the music ready, like I can picture the blends in my head before I ever put them down on the turntables. You know, I, I pre have a good idea of how they're going to sound. So, you know, you're matching tempos in your mind and you're thinking, okay, what's going to sound good? Like what interludes do I want? You, know, you watch a movie or something, or you know something from your past. It's like, all right, I'm going to put that in the back pocket. A lot of it is so much just storing things. And you're lucky to have a, a, a functioning brain that allows you to have so much space for useless information. Like, you know, little interludes I want to use. Like, you know, I could have uh, I could have channeled that in a better way. Go to law school or become a doctor. But, you know, sure. this I is, feel the same way. But this is the life we've chosen. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative person at heart. So, you know. The mix didn't take long, you know, only a few nights once you have the, all the songs ready to go. And so, But really it was more of a, I was like, all right, there's going to be expectations on this because people know me from the first one and it's 10 years apart. You're going to have people who don't, you have no have no idea about the first one. But if you're going to put out a part two, it's got to at least come close to part one, if not be better. So I was like, all right, let me make sure that it is what it is. So spent a couple months listening to it, like, you know. Every day, back and forth to work, you check it out. It's like, all right, is this up to standard? Okay, I, I think I like this. Like, you know, then you just forget about it, and then you think about not putting it out at all. <laughs> and just never putting it out. So, you know, now we're at a stage where I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to put it out. So when this uh, episode is published, I will have the mix ready to go on my SoundCloud, on my MixCloud. Just search uh, Cosm Rocks or Chris Tannehill on SoundCloud, and I'll have it on my Twitter, twitter.com. At Chris Tannehill, so it'll be there as well. So I thought it'd be a good time, you know. Ten years apart, it's a good time, you know. Nine years didn't sound so good. Like I was gonna put it out around Christmas, but now is a good time. So ten years is really <laughs> it's a, it's a good way. It's a good amount of time between mixtapes for 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 it to be reborn and throw something new out there. Were you satiated by it? Because I mean, you were you were DJing at clubs, you were doing parties. Yeah, was it? A, did it feel like, oh, this is a chore, or did it feel like, man, I I need this to add to all the things you love? Like, you love sports. Like, you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the White Sox, and I don't know if people even know that, you know, because— <laughs> I think that, that that's become my thing now on the new show. Like, you're a White Sox guy. <laughs> so That's I all think, right. Yeah, yeah, that's fine, yeah. I mean, you and are. I, I want to talk to you about that, too, later on, but— I mean, you are the White Sox yeah. guy, but, but what, did it allow for— did did that feel therapeutic in a way to go back to let me just be alone with some yeah, music? Of course, yeah. I mean, stress is a life, you know. Uh, wife is totally supportive and she gets it because I'm just a nervous wreck and, and you know, she sees me pacing around the house like I'm the type that around the house always has to be doing something, fixing something, and I'm, I'm not acting like I'm a handyman or whatever, but always trying to like straightening up, fixing, see what needs to be done. Like, you know, always just busy hands all the time. You know what I mean? So she gets it. I mean, I was that way when we met. So she knew I was always had the love for the music and I always had to be tinkering with something. So it's, it's so therapeutic to, to work on something like that. And you're happy with it. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I'm really happy. Okay, with it. good. That's good. Like, I, I appreciate getting the preview link to it. And literally, I care. Like you know, if five people or less like it, I, I know if I hit with you, with Jason, uh, Herb, you know, I, <laughs> basically just my close friends. If they like it, and you know, they they really say if you reach one person, then it's worth it. But in this case, you know, like five people, then it's all good. I so. I, I love that you have the ability to 
hit people in a couple different levels where it's the sound that they may hear of you playing on the score or you come in, like I always text you when I hear something like in a in a drop yeah yeah or or you're you're coming back from break and I'm like the ah, show within the show yes I <laughs> I enjoy the second level and tertiary level of producing that you do on a daily basis but being able to and I'm sure that the, that there's someone who's listening like wait Tanny is a is a DJ like yeah it, I wouldn't even call myself that anymore I just happened to I was DJ in a former really? life. Really in a, a guy life. who puts together an hour-long mixtape. Uh, you know, no, not a DJ though. But not in a sense like someone like Jay Illa, who I respect a lot. The, you know, the Bears Soldier Field DJ. You know, I like he's a working DJ. You know what I mean? Like I'm not really that anymore. But I, every once in a while, like like this project I want to show, like, hey, I used to be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be out there at the clubs and bars until until three, four in the morning when it's time to get paid. Like I was used to be out doing that. So, you know, to it it's still it, you know, has the lineage of 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 a, of a past life, but this still show like hey, I still got a little bit. Do so. do you miss it at all? Um not really, no. My wife's always asking me, she's like, oh uh, Eric B and Rakim are coming to House of Blues. We should go have a date night. I'm like, eh, I think I'm good on that. And I love Eric B and Rakim, but it's just like the idea of staying out at a show until midnight. I'm such a loser now, you know. If, you know, read my my kid a bedtime story, and then if we're all out by like nine thirty, ten o'clock, great. You know, hopefully, stay up for as long as whatever game is on, and then knock out after that, you know. But it's there's nothing wrong with getting great sleep. Uh, yeah, exactly, and that's the one thing that I've learned over the years. Like, you know, there's there's no shame in that really. But you know, I don't. You know, I miss the camaraderie of of uh, of other DJs, but even a lot of those people have moved on. You know, um, guys that I used to DJ with, like they've all had gotten married, had kids. So you know, we thought about getting back together, but it really just seems corny at this point. Like you know, having a, a quote unquote reunion show or a night somewhere. I think it would be fun. You know, a, a one off. The ir- irony is like. I have a bigger following now. I'm not trying to brag, but it just it's the reality of working here. You have a such a much bigger audience than when I was doing, you know, on the 100 watts on uh, on WLUW up north. You know what I mean? So, it's a different ball game now. So, I think if I were younger, I probably would u- utilize that to my advantage and maybe do something, but I don't I don't miss it ever cuz you know, when you have kids, you're lucky if you stay up till 10 o'clock. You know, you say you're going to watch a movie at home on Saturday nights and everyone ends up falling asleep. So I never once think about what, what it would be like to, to go DJ somewhere. <laughs> How does a Rogers Park kid become a White Sox fan? Uh, well, my dad was a White Sox fan, is a White Sox fan. Uh, his father, my grandfather, was a White Sox fan. And it's different because back in the day, you're talking World War II era, you know, 40s. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. You know, I think it was more commonplace for people to like both teams or to not really care. The, the rivalry wasn't really a thing at that point. It was kind of enough for for everyone. You know, it wasn't – I don't know when it became a thing officially, but I think my grandfather rooted for both teams. And then somewhere along the way, I think probably the 69 Cubs broke his heart. And he's like, you know what? We're just going to rock with the White Sox from here on out. And I don't even think it was it was the heartbreak uh, of, of them blowing the, the big lead in the division. I just think it was, it was you know, it was, it was something else uh, along with it. But, you know, eventually it was like, all right, this right, we're, we're riding with this because – uh, my grandfather went to uh, to Proviso East, which is where Ray Ditchke went to school. So, you know, it's right there, Madison-ish. So, you know, you're really on both sides and, you know, really there's no real north side or south side uh, alliance. So they moved up to Rogers Park and, you know, it's just we're a White Sox family, you know, like I was born in the in winning ugly 83 season. So, 
you know, it's <laughs> 83. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you. Someone can do it for me now, finally. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's <laughs> it's all it's all I've ever known really growing up. And, and it wasn't like you're going to be this. It was like, you know, it's like with anything with baseball, it's such a family thing. You know, it's I was talking about it last night with the Future Sox podcast guys like, you know, we my dad. And my grandpa and I, we were at the first win at the New Comiskey Park in 91. You know, mm. that was the only game we ever saw together. So it's so much of a family thing. You know, it, it, no matter where you're at, you just, you know, whatever your fan your dad was, like I know a lot of people, you know, they go the opposite way just, you know, to be rebellious and they kind of stay that way, you know. But with my family, it was just we're a White Sox family, you know. It's, it's the way it is. Disown you otherwise. <laughs> who was your favorite? Uh, Frank Thomas. You know, I was a big kid. Growing up when I was in school, like I uh, still uh, still on the on the huskier side, they called it husky back then. Man, it, it hurt my feelings, <laughs> man. You, you got to go shop in the husky section, like that just seems mean. But it was like right when you're coming of age, and you know you start to fall in love with baseball. It was like you know, eighty nine, ninety, and that's right around when Frank Thomas came up, and you know you you, you look for someone to gravitate towards, and he was unlike anything that you know. And most people hadn't ever seen at at that point. You sure, know, the body of, of a tight end. You know, now it's commonplace. Now, kind of everyone looks like how Frank Thomas did when he first came up. But you would go back and watch the footage of him legging out his first major league hit a triple in Old County Stadium. Like just watch him as a tight end running around out there with with the old school baseball player bodies like around him. You know what I mean? So, and you go to to New Comiskey Park and he's hitting bombs and line drives all over the field. And and you're a big kid and you try to you know, emulate his batting stance when you're in the playground. It was, it was a wrap for me. Big Frank was always my guy. So what was the night the White Sox won the world series like for you? Do you remember it? I do. Yeah. I wasn't in the industry yet. So I, I, you know, it was one of the last things that I got to experience like as, as a true fan without any biases or you're not thinking about anything else as strictly as a fan. And it was an emotional night. I think it was for a lot of White Sox fans, you know, cause so many, generations had suffered and my grandfather uh had passed away in march of that same year in 05 so my dad for whatever reason decided to buy a season ticket plan that year and we went to about 20 25 games we had like that plan and we saw you know a lot of great games that year and how fortuitous that it was that year but the night that they won i just remember you know listening to to john rooney on the call turning down the fox call and just like and it's it was when when Juan Uribe reached into the stands and made that catch. I think all of us were just kind of at least me. I was like, all right, I'm going to lose it now because then you know it's like, all right, it's destiny at this point. Like you know, that's just one of those moments like in time that's forever frozen. You know, you don't remember the final out as much as that moment. You're like, oh my god, it's going to happen. Nothing's going to stand in the way now. But I remember, you know, we were living in a two flat in Rogers Park, and my grandmother lived upstairs from us. So I remember the whole family. We we you know listen to the radio that night and we kind of all just like enjoyed the moment as a family and instead of going out and getting drunk that night like a lot of people will take advantage of and just you know just party just to party but when you have like that type of connection to to a baseball team you just it's a different thing so you just kind of stay in listen to someone like Lawrence Holmes doing the coverage all night into the night you know and watching the tv coverage and you're just like I have no interest in going out and and running the risk of of forgetting any of this you know so it's it was it's an emotional night. I think a lot of people will tell you the same. So. I, I I love that night, and I hate that night because of what I was asked to do uh, as far as work goes. Like, I wasn't – it's 
the emote the emoting that you can do on the air is different right. than what you can do off of it. And I had to keep the show going. I had to deal with Jesse Rogers, like getting us guests yeah. out in Houston. I had to keep John Cangelosi happy. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I saw John, by the way, at yeah. Soxfest. Oh, okay. We were on a panel together at Soxfest. How, how did I miss the panel? Was that on Friday? It was Sunday. It was Sunday morning. Uh, okay, I got and, you. And I, said, I was like, John, I haven't seen you in 14 years. And we, you know, we caught up and we had a good time. He's like, I, I want to be on the show. I want to be on the show. So at some point, John's going to come it. and be on the I show. I have him on here. You know? <laughs> it, it, yeah, the pod actually might be better now that I think about it. But I, I remember we stayed on for eight hours mm-hmm. that night. I mean, it's it's a great moment, like, career-wise for me Sure. To, to be on. And then the initial plan was Mitch was like, okay, the, the White Sox went in tonight. You guys stay on until, like, 3 or whatever. Because I think we started at 10. And then he just said, no. Nah, just stay on until you know, the North Show gets going at six o'clock. Did the adrenaline kind of carry you through? Like in the moment, you're not thinking about it, right? You're just kind of like just roll with whatever. You like, don't you even know. care. You, you don't even care until the end. Like you get done with it, and you're like, "Oh, I just did eight hours of radio straight." Now you have a lot of help. Yeah. You, know, you got people in the room with you. Jesse's putting course, guests on. Yeah callers are just like that's that's one of those nights just i was talking to barry about this the other day and it was just one of those nights like he was talking about after the the cubs you know finally won the pennant just open up the phone lines and people just don't know what to do they're just strictly emoting you know like you're not you're not there's you're not driving topics or anything it's kind of just like it's it's uncharted territory especially then you know a team hadn't won in so many years and Everyone's kind of just going through the same emotions all yeah. at the same time. You know, it's unlike anything you'd ever hear on the radio. It, it, it's you're trying to encapsulate like all these feelings that you have, you have in like the history of the franchise. And really, people just wanted to be connected that night. Mm-hmm. Like Sox fans just wanted to talk to other Sox fans and share their stories and talk about it's very similar to what what Cubs fans went through in 2016 where you're sharing it with generations exactly of of fans like I remember going my first game this was really special to my uncle this was really special to my grandmother like all of those things like play into it and then I remember walking out of there and Mitch being like so yeah they're gonna fly to Midway I'm gonna need you to go to Midway. I'm gonna need you to go on ahead. <laughs> to go on ahead and <laughs> and get your butt over to Midway. And I was happy to do it, and it turned out to be great. But I went home. I had a few hours before that had to happen. I think I need, the flight was getting back around like 11 o'clock in the morning, and I had my little bottle of Vuv, like just tucked away in 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 the condo. Whiteboard that, please, for the audience. Uh, Vuv Clico, <laughs> a bottle of champagne, just a little small bottle of of Vuv and I opened it and just cried (laughs) like I just cried and cried and cried and I was like okay I'm gonna have this 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 little bottle of champagne cry myself to sleep and then get up three hours from now I was was gonna I was gonna ask I don't remember if uh what you would have been doing on the schedule that uh, on a night like that uh, did you have the nighttime show that same night after that, or they keep the day off, or were you reporting reporting on the Bears? Maybe. Well, I have been taken off Bears to do White Sox stuff. Yeah. 
So, you know, Zach was still doing bears okay. and I was doing, I would go back to Hallis Hall in like a week, but yeah. it was everything. I'll never forget the parade, like the parade, yeah. because I, I didn't know how to cover anything like that because we had never had yeah, anything no like does, that. Yeah. And then the White Sox were like, yeah, well, you're going to be on the bus. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, you're going to be on the bus with like other media members and members of the organization. And I'm like the bus in the parade. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, that's, that's how this works. I said, okay. And I remember like it, it, I get emotional even thinking about it because of the different communities that comprise white Sox fandom yeah. and how segregated, like we were talking about earlier, the city can be coming down 35th street. And they made the route, and I'm so glad they did, where they took the turn down King Drive. Mm -hmm. So it was 35th Street to King Drive to then head north. And I remember seeing these little kids out there with just, like, one single white sock. (laughs) These are little beautiful black children that are, like, six or seven years old standing in the median on 35th Street waving their one little white sock as the parade goes by. And I'm like, wow, like that, it hit me. Little images like that. It hit me. I was like, oh my God, this is special. It's it's crazy because, you know, I I was there at the parade also. Um, My wife worked downtown then, still does, but... You know, we went downtown to go to go see the parade, and it was just like I'm not a big fan of big crowds. You know, it's just sure. not my thing. So we ended up just going down, like you know, near uh, Madison and uh, and and Clark, and it was like, oh, you know what? Let's just watch it in the office. You know, and like we we experienced the what's going on outside. Let's go inside and watch it on the television, so we don't miss anything. And you know, that's things like that is what you didn't see on TV. Most people who are there didn't see on TV through the coverage, you know what I mean? Like, but little things like that, it's amazing what what always you know will stick with you. You know what I mean? Like the, the turn down LaSalle. So I want to say we came down Jackson and then the turn down LaSalle was like the real like eye opener. Because the the cool thing about it, and I thought the Cubs did a, a nice job of it too. The 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 neighborhoods, like going through the different neighborhoods. Sure, yeah. You know, we we went through Pilsen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I felt like. It was like, a South Side thing. Yes. Like, and they wanted to make sure they hit on those notes. Like, you know, we're yes. a South Side team and, you know, it, it is what it is. And you then you, you take that turn down LaSalle and then you saw the sea of people. Mm-hmm. Before it was like. White Sox fans are representing, and and it was and it felt very like a neighborhood. Yeah. But then when you turned down LaSalle, it felt like the city. It felt like oh, everyone came out yeah. to to come party at this thing and be a part of it, and it was it was an amazing feeling. I I hope to God we get another one because I also the, there's the look we we wear it as White Sox fans. There's the Napoleonic complex, and I think that we we can all be truthful about it. But having that moment where there was the recognition of the South Side and the White Sox as an organization, and here's this organization that has the crazy Venezuelan manager and the black GM yep. and, the, and the Jewish owner from, from New York who grew up a Brooklyn Dodgers fan because of Jackie Robinson. Like, all of that stuff, like, went into – the love for it. And it, it was just, 
it was a really awesome feeling. And that was something that didn't go into necessarily the coverage of the team at the time on the national level. You know, like obviously Ozzy and Kenny and Jerry were big stories and a big part of it. And it was part of what made it the team so interesting. But you didn't hear a lot about, you know, the South side. Like, you know, when when the national crew comes in and do a game like Fox, like, you know, they, they're yeah, sure. They were at Jimbo's or wherever they were at the night. And they have the the one shot of like, you know, the the group of people at Jimbo celebrating, but really Southside is so much more than that. You know, Pilsen, Little Village, like there's so many other areas that really are about what the Southside is about. So that's it's such a unique way that they did it. And, you know, and let's be honest, like, you know, because it was the White Sox, there wasn't as, it wasn't as many people. So logistically, it probably was a little easier. Sure. You know? <laughs> like the Cubs thing, just literally not possible I mean, to go through the North Side. Dude, you know? <laughs> the Cubs thing, I was working with Dan, the day of the Cubs parade, and we were underneath, like we were right at the bean. Yeah, I remember that day, yeah. And and it was bedlam. Like everywhere you looked, it was straight up bedlam. And I was trying to figure out like how the hell am I gonna get home? Well <laughs> like, that was the thing because you know, I'm you know, now that we're the Cubs flagship and you know, you get a chance to to meet Theo, meet Jed, meet Pat and Ron, like you know, it's it's impossible to not have some love for the team Facts. and the organization, you know. And then, like so much uh, of what I was doing professionally, you know, just going along for the ride of the Cubs World Series, like you know, it's just it's something I wouldn't trade for the world, you know. Like it was my first time in the industry working, uh, you know, with a World Series as the backdrop, you know what I mean? So. But I will say that riding the red line from Howard to Lake that day might have been my personal version of hell. hell. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's packed all the way from Howard because people are coming from Evanston and Skokie. So it's already packed at Howard Street. And they're singing Go Cubs Go literally the whole time. And here I am just trying to get to work, you know. And I, I'm like, I'm already over it. <laughs> no, but you're, you're right, though. Like, I... But like, I, you couldn't even walk like you know. Thank God for the pedway down here, yes. you know, because otherwise, literally, I think I don't know how I would have gotten into work that day. Well, even th- that was the thing because our building is right where you know there were buses and all sorts of stuff on going on Randolph, and just people were in the street. Yes, like they were in streets that weren't closed down. <laughs> they were just in the street, and you're like, how am I going to get over there? Oh. Okay, I gotta go underground yep. and then come up like a mole. I remember I came up and I looked like you know like groundhog. Look, you know, you just come up and you look like oh no nope, no I'm good on that actually. Uh, you there's literally no you can't walk at the crosswalk to get across Michigan Avenue. Just go back under. Thank God for that. You know it was it was a crazy day and I hope if the White Sox you know God willing if they ever win again in the near future I wonder if it'll be bigger than in in 05 because I wonder if both fan bases can, can kind of put that stuff behind them and just everyone, it turns into a bigger party. Cause if like the white Sox win one within five years of the Cubs winning one, I would hope that some of the rivalry stuff goes away and kind of everyone can just appreciate the moment because this city and championships, like not exactly a thing that happens. It's not Boston, yeah. Boston kid who I've really, I've know, had I, enough of you. Yeah, Please go away. Yeah. Like, I'm 17 years old and I had 35 championships. All <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. I'm four and I get a championship every year. Exactly. I, so I hope if the Sox win one soon, uh, I, I think I think the party would be a little bit bigger. I, I, would hope. I don't know if it goes away though, and <laughs> I mean, you know, I I had the shirts, I, I had the we still hear shirts. <laughs> I actually really did enjoy like that aspect of it because Hyde Park is a little different. It it's supposed to be Sox country, but it's kind of Cubs country. Yeah, in, in Hyde Park, 
And so, like, just walking around, like, that morning, the morning afterwards, you're walking around and you see, like, White Sox fans, like, kind of sheepishly wearing their White Sox stuff. Like, yeah. okay, so y'all won. And that's cool. The season's over. I don't know what you're talking about. But the season's <laughs> over now. Quit living in the past. <laughs> as, as he's wearing his Bobby Jenks jersey. Right. His Bobby Jenks jersey. I quit living in the past. Twist I, on his wearing dad. your 17 Griffey <laughs> jersey out on the street. And there was just kind of this, like, if you see a White Sox fan, you'd be like. It's yeah. all right. We're going to get through it. It's all right. You see that, like, you just you even have to talk. Just a little nod. Yep. And it's like, yeah, we still out here. Yeah. We still living. Yeah, we're 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 still happy for you to an extent. No, yeah, you know? we, no, I t- <laughs> and, and, and I think that this being in this industry, like there is an appreciation. Like, how could I not root for Theo? Yeah, you know what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. How how can I not root for Chris Bryant? It's that's a hard thing. To, yeah. To, to, to do the mental gymnastics yeah. on. When I met Chris Bryant, I'm like, this guy's too nice. What's going on with Chris Bryant? <laughs> What's what? with this guy it's, and it's, his perfect smile? Yeah, and his, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and his great features and the fact that he seems to love his wife. <laughs> what a jerk. Yeah, get a load of this guy. <laughs> get a, Being get a load of Mr. Perfect over here. So, you know, solid accommodating and stuff. <laughs> you know, he'll hang around and just be cool and talk, you know. What's up with this guy? What's his problem? Yeah. What's going on over here with this guy with his smile and his great swing and his MVP like season? What a dick. You know, like you're sitting there going, how can you not root for these guys? And if you've ever had any like conversation with Theo yeah. or Jed, yeah. you you love those guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've been so great, you know, being the Cubs flagship. It's you know, people wonder, like, oh, you're a Sox fan working at the Cubs flagship. That must suck. Like, no, not really. It really you know? doesn't. Like, they treat us great. <laughs> they really do. They really do. I, and it's not to say that, you know, that the Sox didn't because, you know, the, the you know, my love for Ed and DJ, like every time we travel to a road city that the Sox are playing in, it's one of the things we have to do. Go see Ed and DJ. And they're like sure. still like family. You know what I mean? But, it, you know, it's definitely a similar type of thing uh, with the with the Cubs here. So, you know. Could you imagine what? What does it look like if the Bears win it? I was just thinking about that as we were talking about a unified front and people celebrating. I mean, it would just It's it would, the Hawks thing well, I was times gonna say, five. I was gonna say the Hawks, like, you know, that their their Millennium Park thing was 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 a thing. Yeah, it was it was, but it's it was I, but we're talking about the Bears yes, here. <laughs> it's it's diff, it would be different because I I think the Hawks like they captured something that was like, oh, Hockey, cool. These guys are winning. I'm yeah, down. Exactly. I don't know nothing about the game, but I'm ha- I'm happy for them, and this is awesome. And maybe I'll go see a hockey game at some yeah. point if the Bears win. Yeah, I mean, you you already have the built-in fan base like of one of the the great charter franchises in the NFL, and like so you already have that built in of the people who would just want to see it. But then you take on the people that really don't care about football or sports either way. Like, which is pretty much like probably half the people that were at the Hawks parade were just like there for the ride. I think it's fair to say you take those people, add them on to already crazy Bears fan base. It would it would be unreal. And I think I think we're going to see it in the next couple of years. I hope that that is the case. And I've been trying to think, do you use at this point, do you use Soldier Field? If you're the Bears, like obviously you Grant Park is where you can fit a million people. Yeah, but. Is there like a? There wouldn't be enough room. I mean, no, no, no. But I'm saying, like, does as does the jumping the, off point, does the parade begin? Yeah, at with a full 
Like, come see them off at Soldier Field yeah. and then run across traffic exactly. <laughs> to get to Grant Park exactly. for, for, for after they take their ride around downtown and then back down to to the pavilion. It would, I mean, it would start. It would start at the airport, I think. Yeah, you know, that's come, a good point. When they get home from you know Miami or wherever it's going to be, uh, if they win, yeah, it would start there. And I think they would just kind of figure it out on the fly. It would just be a nonstop party, you know. Because think about, you know, I'm 35. You know, the 85 Bears don't mean anything to me other than like the relationships of the guys from the, that team that I've met that we've worked with. You know, guys like Hamp and, you know, I got a chance to work with Hilgi on the Bears broadcast. So, you know, them on a personal Thayer. level there. Yeah. You know, I'm on a personal level. But really, you know, guys in their 30s, like the, the team doesn't it doesn't mean much to you, like clinging to 85. So you have a whole generation of football fans who had never seen anything like that. You know, so it would it would be insane. Tanny, I appreciate you for uh, sitting down with me on House of L. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. I was always floored to, to hear that you wanted to have me in here and babble about stuff that. People don't care about. <laughs> you're kidding, right? No, you're 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 high on the list. And and as I was working my way through, like what I wanted to do for season two, it's like okay, I got to get Tanny in here. I'm trying really hard to not, like, I don't want to do just score people. Yeah, you know, like I'm trying to m- mix you all in. Yeah, but when you but when you talk to people around here, there's interesting people that are around here. You know, facts. Like, and I don't get to talk to you much anymore because, like, you know, we talk for five minutes before transition because you know you're busy on your show. I'm busy on mine, and I'm trying to I'm tail lights at six o'clock. Right. You know? <laughs> if you know, I'm, if I'm not out of here when the legal ID is playing, like I'm late, so I don't get a chance to talk to you. And I know you're trying to wrap it up, but I was wondering, like, how do you? Uh, compartmentalize. You know, I'm thinking about getting credentialed this year uh, to cover the White Sox on okay. a professional level. And you're a Sox fan. You make no secrets about it, but also you've covered the team in a professional capacity. How, what's your best advice to dealing with something like that? You know what I mean? Without being seen as a fan covering the team, like taking yourself seriously and doing an honest job and and trying to be biased, you know, or unbiased reporting on a team, but still having love for the team. Like I know you never report on the Sox exclusively, so it's a little different, but still you've gone there in a professional capacity to report. I think that it's about the concept of being unbiased is is almost impossible. I don't think that it's impossible to be fair. Okay. So that's the goal that you work in. When I was reporting on the Bears, and I mean to a certain extent as being a talk show host or someone who would occasionally go out and cover a baseball game or uh, a basketball game, I always try to keep in mind the person who I was representing. And it, it's not Mitch Rosen or the B&B show when I was doing Bears Report. It's that fan. What does the fan want to know? What does the intelligent Bears fan want to know? And you try to give it to them in the most honest way that you can. You try to, to share what you see. What I've learned as I've gotten older is there's so much that we take for granted with our access. And there's the little things that we get to do that you don't necessarily think to add to your coverage that I'm trying to give more of as I get older. What's it like to be out on the the field for batting practice? Because people don't get the opportunity to do that. What are those um, moments like when you see guys warming up on the sidelines those types of snapshots that we can take and share with people, I think are really valuable. But but back to, to your question, 
it's about being fair. It's, I would, I would probably say in the history of me talking about the White Sox, I'm a lot harder on them yeah. than, than I am on, on the Cubs. And I have had, like, I, I always say that the biannual me and Kenny FU fest that, that, that will happen. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw Kenny during, during the, during the panel, uh, the kids press conference at Zoraida was, uh, was MC. And I wanted to, I wanted to say something like, Hey, uh, six, seven, the score, huh? You going to come uh, on? Huh? But I don't know how that would have been. I, I think Zoraida <laughs> is actually still mad at me for something I said about, and Zoraida and I used to work together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were friends and she like, she was a neighbor in the building at, at NBC tower. And I think she's still mad at me for something I said about Kenny. <laughs> oh no! Meanwhile, me and Kenny have like, we, we had our disagreement very loudly on the backfields camelback ranch <laughs> to, to the point where Rick Hahn was like, y'all all right. Over here. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're, and, and, but I mean, it happens. And now I see Kenny and we, we talk all the time and I, he's, I am desperate to get him on house of L. I know you are. I wanted, I let the, I wanted to use that as the end. Like, Hey, you know, desperate. <laughs> he, I don't know if he'll ever do it, but, and I told him, I said, the interviews that I like to do now, like I don't want to ask him about what Ricky Renteria did in the sixth inning. Like I don't want to <laughs> right, have yeah, yeah. bullpen usage and right. all that nonsense. I want to talk to him because his life is fascinating. And yeah, a guy that grew up a black, you know, with Black Panthers raising him and around mm-hmm. him. Like I, like what is that like? A guy that was that played football at a really high level. Raised, raised a son, played f- football professionally. You know, what's that like? You know what I mean? Like, how does that change things? I'm sure he spoke about that. But, but yeah, it's, yeah. I think Kenny, I don't know Kenny personally, but he's probably a, a proud guy. And I'm sure he'll gladly accommodate once they start winning some games, which hopefully, maybe, and hopefully in the near future. Yeah. But I like it when I wish those guys weren't as afraid to talk. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, people are interested in the White Sox. Like, White Sox fans want that coverage. So, again, I keep going away from what I'm trying to tell you about it, is just try to be fair about what it is you see. You don't fan out. You don't wear gear to, to go cover the right. team. You, you go be normal. You talk to people. You let them get to know you. I I was telling Tony that I'm I love watching Tony's kind of evolution from being this hot take artist <laughs> to now having to be responsible. Well, it's still there too, and I remember like early on in the process, so I'm like, you gotta watch out with that some of that because you're gonna have to be accountable. You can yep. say what you want, but just know someone's gonna hold you to that once you're once you're there at shoot around. And and y- people would be shocked at how much these people listen. <laughs> and and read and watch like they're they're they say they don't but it's true and i i have had conversations with front office people in football and basketball that'll be like oh i saw what you put on twitter and i'm like you're not on twitter and they're like yeah i am but uh it's just like the like the guy in philadelphia like they they all have these burner accounts sure, yeah. that, that they're following. So I was trying to explain to Tony how important it is to be accountable. Say what you want, but but when you get questioned, be ready. Be ready to back it up. And so if, if Kenny and I have a disagreement, I'm not going to back down if I do think that I'm right and I can explain why I think I was right. I don't like to take shots. I don't like to take personal shots. Yeah. 
I, I, I like to take, I'll take a shot like right now. I'll take shots at John Paxson's job performance, but not about John Paxson, the man, because John Paxson, the man seems to be a good man. Um, but I don't think that it's out of bounds to talk about how poor of a job that he's done putting the bulls together. So for me, it's give people something that they can't get. Like what, what is it that you're taking away from your experience at the ballpark or inside the clubhouse that day that the person that's in their car or that's going to be listening to a podcast that you do mm-hmm. or you jumping on with with Mac and Parkins that they're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, uh, Bernstein was really good at helping me kind of develop some of that when I first started out as a reporter. And you would be amazed at what fans gravitate towards. It doesn't have to be, well, you got the the scoop. Right, like, yeah, yeah. like Getting the scoop is whatever, and I applaud reporters that are about getting the scoop. Adding context to things exactly. is where I think you can be very valuable in, in working locker rooms. And and sometimes like you, your development in some of that context grows. Like Even now with Alex and Matt and Lance, I'm there's so much more context to the Bears the teams that stuff I covered. Stuff that, that you reported on, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden that's coming to light a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Stuff, <laughs> stuff that, I, that I knew – but I didn't know to like a degree. Right. And now I go, whoa, finding out what was going on, like what I thought was going on in that locker room, what was actually going on in that locker room. Pat Manley was the cancer, right? <laughs> he, I mean, that guy is the worst. You know, you talk about a clubhouse lawyer. I mean, this guy. <laughs> Love that. There, there were some guys that were bad. But, yeah, I, I hope that you do it. I actually think the score needs a White Sox podcast. Well, well, I was kind of thinking that not necessarily the podcast avenue, but maybe would branch out to that. But ultimately, I just want to have – a more educated opinion when we talk White Sox on the show because right now it's pretty much it's like, hey, you're you're a Sox fan. What do you think about this? Yeah, I want to have a little bit more baseline context to what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know but what I mean? you watch games, you read, yeah. you're you're on top of it. But I will tell you that there is a difference. Um, my, I would say that my knowledge of football jumped exponentially from covering a team every day. And being at games, and I I talk about on the air all the time, the idea of the all-22 view, Mm -hmm. how I feel like that's where we're going. Because there would be stuff that I could see in the press box that you're not going to see on television because television is following the ball. And then you can see, oh, that's where that safety lined up Mm pre-snap. That's why he wasn't able to make it back to, to make the play. Or this is what was going on on the backside of a play. And then you're able to talk to guys about it in the locker room afterwards. So I think that it's really valuable. I'm not saying that that host that never covered anything don't know what they're talking about because there's a ton of them, but that do know what they're talking about. But if you can add that level of context to something when you're talking about it, I think you make the fan a little bit better. You bring them in, and that's what they want. That's what we should be doing. We have the press pass. We have the access. So let's use that access to make the fan better or give them something interesting. The the Instagram posts for me that do the best are those little slices Mm -hmm. of things. And it can be, oh, well, this is batting practice in spring training. This is Lou Bob hitting off a tee Mm -hmm. at spring training. 
in some cases, people just need it. Yeah. Like what you have a hard winter, like you just need a little it's bit of that. Aesthetically, it's just, you know, it's it's fulfilling watching just you know, listening. Like not even watching, we're just hearing the repetitive bat crack of, of batting practice. But like a video like, oh, this guy's watching this guy. You know what I mean? Like he's seeing how he approaches his work every day. You know what I mean? It's little things like that. But, give but you. that people don't even know. I talk I joked about the backfields. People don't know. What do the backfields look like? That was like? amazing, like seeing the Cubs facility and seeing a, a B game going on back there with, with kids who will probably never make it, you know what I mean? But just seeing who jumps out to you, you know what I mean? Like it, like the backfield stuff really helps open up your your horizons as a baseball fan. Like it, it really kind of recenters you and like, you're like oh, yeah, the, this these guys people will never talk about, you know, but they're all fighting their asses off, you know what I mean, to get mm-hmm. noticed, you know, you, and, you know, uh, Jason McLeod's back there watching him on the golf cart. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but see, like adding that, yeah, yeah, to to a report, sure, is the difference between you know surface stuff and and getting a little bit deeper. So I'm always looking for something like who was talking to whom, um, wh- what was the level of conversation like? What's the vibe? Like I remember even this year, like there's a, a part of me that really misses it. Like being a part of it, I don't miss the drive to Hallis Hall. I was gonna say football is yeah, yeah. It tugs at me when it comes to football. I I don't like. I feel a little more disconnected from the Bears than I would like to be, um, and maybe that'll change, and, and maybe I can figure out a way to to get up there more often. But even on Sundays, I have to be at the studio early, so I can't always be at Soldier Field, which is something that I prefer. And I know for big games this year, like the Minnesota game, the Rams game, there's another game I went to where I wanted to be there. Even if I wasn't going to stay for one play, I wanted to the lead up. Yeah, I wanted to go through the lots. I wanted to walk up uh, the, the, the promenade. I, I wanted to go on the Waldron deck and see how fans were reacting. I wanted to go inside the building feel what the vibe is like there. Even in the press box, you can kind of catch a vibe of how big a game is. Who's here? You know, what reporters are here sure. nationally? Sure. You know, who's covering this? Oh, Sal Palantonio's here. Josina Anderson's here. This is a significant game from ESPN standpoint because of who they sent to go cover the game. Who's here from NFL Network? Like what what sorts of choices are being made editorially? that allow you to to kind of frame the game. And I went to a couple of games or three games this year at Soldier Field just for that element to bring back to the studio to talk with the guys that I work with because that's where I'm my most valuable to them. They don't see the game the same way that I do from a reporter thing. My 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 biggest achievement doing the show with Lance Alex uh, last year with Jim and now with Matt Forte was those guys asking me, we are in post game and we're listening to John Fox talk. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing down stuff that he says. And they're like, why we're playing it. And I said, well, I want to ask you about some of this stuff. So I want to quote directly, sure. or I want, I want to have an idea of what he was saying or why he reacted. What was the question that was asked that got him to react that way? And I remember at the end of the season, Lance was then doing it. 
<laughs> Lance was then writing stuff down that they were paying attention to what was being said in a way that maybe they hadn't thought about it because they don't have to. You know, Lance Winston, what, nine Pro Bowls. Alex Brown is fourth all-time in sacks for the Bears. Jim Miller played the position in a championship level. So being able to give that to them and and them respect it and then have a better understanding of what the hell I was doing in the in the locker room back then was a real like big thing for me and and when you do put in the work people they appreciate it when you ask questions i'm a big fan of the double back you're not going to get a lot of stuff done in a scrum you know a lot of people are just trying to get their question asked and i think it makes it difficult for people to listen mm-hmm. to to what's being said in a particular press conference, I'm a big fan of Colombo. One more thing, exactly. <laughs> One more thing, Ricky. <laughs> exactly. Like I'll just to clarify, you know, I heard you say this. I didn't get the chance. I just wanted to ask you off the record, or if if guys are willing to go on the record, and it's good. Like I'll pull Rick Hahn aside almost every time I go out to the ballpark, just because. Like I'll, he's he's very generous with his time, and you don't you don't do it for ten minutes. You do it for two questions. Right. You know. Hey, you said this. Wait, what does that mean? Blah 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 blah. Those types of things. I. It's a way to build a relationship too, and that's what Tony's doing now with the Bulls. And now he gets it because I don't think he understood. I was like, no, 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 wait until everything's over, and get the guy's attention. I say, hey, I just want to ask you one more thing. Do the Colombo bit, and then you you would be shocked at where conversations end up going to. So that would be my long-winded advice. No, it's, it's, so you don't even have to put it on the podcast. I just wanted to know because, like no, I said, it's, it's I don't there. get a chance to talk to you a lot about this stuff, you know, talk to you a lot at all because, you know, uh, through football season, like, I was like, I was hoping they'd give you a bye week because, like, you know, we're trying to – we haven't gotten together and watched a, a Bears game like yeah. you know, at, at the new spot yet. So I was like, I haven't had a chance to talk to you and couldn't make it to the title game party. So, you know, I'm glad I got a chance to, to – uh, to just sit back and listen to how you're because you know you're one of the few people that you know still has the respect of someone who does a credible job on a reporting level but still is not afraid to be up there in the 500 level which i fully intend to exploit again this year <laughs> uh you I know just <laughs> nice uh same seats same seats oh i think i got moved a little closer so like okay. in the same section Ooh, not too close because we're in that sun that's not going to work for me I don't, that's know, true. We, we can't have that yeah but but if those late <laughs> afternoon star sun goes right behind the ballpark it is perfect. just fantastic but no one ever thinks of you as like you know as as fan reporting on team you know what i mean like but you at the same time you could still do both you know yeah there's a different vibe like i i would say that i'm a little different yeah if i know that if i've got the credential on I'm a little bit different yeah. in approach to it. And I, I I take it seriously because I I want the people that I'm covering to know. I mean, like they know, like the White Sox know I'm a fan. Like Rickon knows I'm a fan. Yeah, because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna carry that with me going forward no matter what, because I've been on this radio station for how many years being White Sox guy on the afternoon show. You know what I mean? So I right. know you can't run from a lot of that stuff, you know, but you still can do a, a respectable job and not be be a clown show out there, you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm trying hard to, to to not do that. So, but Tanny, thanks again, man. This Thank was you. an absolute delight. I'm glad that we were able to make it happen. Thanks for sticking around, you know, three extra hours after your show was oh, done. No, I was looking forward to this and just, just talking to you, man, because it's, 
it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot different in this in this setting, you know, where we can talk long form, no commercial breaks to yep. break it up, you know. So I, I enjoyed it very much, and I appreciate it. And thanks for always has given me a platform, and and you know with with and supporting early on. I, I thank you last time for this when I was on the air about a year ago. I think it was almost a year ago to the day. Yeah, I just got a notification on my phone saying flashback to a year ago when we had our segment. But it's like thanks again for always supporting and giving me a platform again. Still, like over the years, it's it's much appreciated. Wasn't it worth it? It was totally worth it. You guys told me to not clip these into two-parters anymore, so I am listening to your feedback on it, and hopefully you enjoyed the episode with Tanny, even though it's two hours long. But I still think it's worth it. So I'm trying to not be as crazy on the front and back end of it and talk as long as I usually do because I appreciate that you've already put the two hours in. But I also like answering your emails. At House of L Podcast at gmail.com. House of L Podcast at gmail.com. That's where you can email me with all sorts of stuff. I got a little bit of a backlog on these, so let me try and get through a couple. Justin suggesting, hey, Stacy King would love to hear inside Jordan Bull stories and Jim Rose. I always enjoyed him on the news. This is what I mean, Justin. Jim Rose already was on the podcast. Literally just scroll through. You'll find it. It is great. He told great bull stories. Exactly what you're looking for. It's here. Just scroll through. You'll see it. We haven't done so many episodes that it's lost. It's not like it's Marin and it's like 10 years of this stuff. It's 57 episodes. I think Jim Rose was like episode 20 or something like that. I'm not even sure. But I do know that he's been on the podcast and it was a great episode. You want him? You got him. It's done. Done deal. See what I mean? There's people up here. This from Scott. Scott sent me an attachment. Uh-oh. This is a scam. Oh, he sent an email saying Ranji or the return of golf, but he did it on Twitter, and I said do it on email. So that was his email. Um, Probably not going to have Jason on again until I, I get a little, probably after one year, because he was one of the first guests on the show. So we're trying to kind of go around a little bit before we have people come back. Not that Jason's not welcome. He's totally welcome. Actually, as I'm recording this, I just saw Jason in the hallway. Ooh, scandal. Yeah. He's doing his uh, show for, for Mad Dog. So, um, this from Rob. Lawrence, you probably already considered or been requested to do this, but I'd be very interested in ha- hearing you interview Carol Marine. Ah, now that is interesting. Her office is right around the corner from mine at DePaul. Yeah, I, I honestly want to talk with her. I'd love to talk with Marianne Ahern as well. Maybe after we get through the mayoral election, it'd be cool to hear how you cover something like that and what becomes important to to people like that. So, yeah. But yes, she's she's a legend. I mean, she's got her own thing at DePaul. Like, she's... Like got her own little portion of the 
communications department. And I see her working the students and getting them ready. And it's it's yet another reason to go to DePaul. Like some of the the adjuncts that we have are unreal. This from Mary Lou, who says, Lawrence, you may already have had them in mind, but John Greenberg and Lauren Cometer would be great to hear from, including hearing about how the athletic began and has since evolved and grown. That's good. Thanks for all your work on the podcast. So far, I've only had a chance to listen to a couple of the episodes, but they've been great, and I enjoy listening to your interviews on the air too. Thank you very, very much, Mary Lou. John and I are actually, I think that John is going to be on. Um, he's teaching, strange, he's teaching a class at DePaul this year about entrepreneurial jur- journalism, and I'm going to go talk to his class at some point, and then I'll we'll do a House of L. That's the way I see it playing out. Um, okay. This from Joe. Please don't change a thing. I live for these podcasts. Only suggestion would be if you ever thought of reaching out to other station personalities, Ro Khan, Tom Waddle, Lynn Bramer. Lynn, Lynn Bramer was on the podcast. See what I mean? He's literally, if you just scroll through, you'll find Lynn Bramer. We had a nice chat about radio. Roe is actually someone I'd really like to get on. I've I've always loved Roe Khan as a talk show host. And he's got a very rich history in this town. So I will ask. I don't, I don't really know Tom well. I'm, I don't know if he'd be interested in doing it. Joe finishes by saying, by the way, I love the last one with Mark. Yeah, the Grody episode was pretty bleeping dope. Very, very cool. All right, one more. This from John McIntosh. She says, Lawrence, how about Rebecca Harlow? She has Chicago ties. Not only does Rebecca have Chicago ties, she has ties to yours truly. Rebecca and I used to work together over at NBC5. We used to host Sports Sunday together, and she is terrific. We've been trying to, her schedule is so crazy that when I first started the podcast, she was one of the people that I wanted, and we had worked out a time, but then she got called to Summer League in Las Vegas And now with her being with the Knicks all the time, it'll probably have to wait until I don't think they come to town again. Do they? It'll probably have to wait until after the season is over. So I would suspect an April or May episode with Rebecca Harlow, who is one of my downright favorites. Just super cool. Super, super cool. All right. That'll do it for now. That'll do it for me. We appreciate you being a part of the show. I'm glad that you got a chance to hear Tanny. He's a special cat, man. Really, really special and extremely talented. If you want to email us, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com is the way that you can do it. Thanks for listening to episode 57. The Olin Crutes episode. Wait, maybe I should get Olin on. It's a good idea. Thanks for listening. Peace.